The centre was not holding. It was a country of bankruptcy notices and public auction announcements and commonplace reports of casual killings and misplaced children and abandoned homes and vandals who misspelled even the four-letter words they scrawled. It was a country in which families routinely disappeared, trailing bad checks and repossession papers. Adolescents drifted from city to torn city, sloughing off both the past and the future as snakes shed their skins. Children who were never taught and would never now learn the games that had held society together. People were missing. Children were missing. Parents were missing. Those left behind filled desultory missing persons reports, then moved on themselves. It was not a country in open revolution. It was not a country under enemy siege. It was the United States of America in the cold late spring of 1967 and the markets were steady and the GMP high and a great many articulate people seemed to have a sense of high social purpose and it might have been a spring of brave hopes and national promise but it was not and more and more people had the uneasy apprehension that it was not. All that seemed clear was that at some point we had aborted ourselves and butchered the job, and because nothing else seemed so relevant, I decided to go to San Francisco. San Francisco was where the social hemorrhaging was showing up. San Francisco was where the missing children were gathering and calling themselves hippies. When I first went to San Francisco in that cold late spring of 1967, I did not even know what I wanted to find out, and so I just stayed around a while and made a few friends. At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here with... Lucy, hello. This week, join us! As we, as we light up, give in to the paranoia and screw on our tinfoil hats, we are talking 1970s paranoiac conspiracy cinema. Lucy? Yeah, um, alright, yeah. So, um, I think before I wanted, to, before I launch into that though, I wanted to just quickly, uh, shoot the elephant before it even makes it through the door and say, yes, uh, a group of idiot children downstairs have been tossed a couple of tambourines and um, a fucking microphone and they're making like, well, as you can maybe hear, shit punk. Um, let, let me to yeah. Lucy is enga- is engaged in a kind of Cold War situation. I Very mean, apt. It's, it's been a. I mean, it's been about as cold as the actual Cold War was. So there's been some proxy conflicts, but essentially Cold War of our downstairs neighbours who are a punk band. Mm. And I've been taking very much the American stance in terms of really ramping up shit needlessly, but then blaming it on them. Um, Because (laughs) I just can't stand what they're doing. But... I'm, enjo- I'm enjoying your uncomplicated picture of the Cold War. There's a oh, it's the Americans. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's also like uh, also apt to mention that like I'm on very little sleep, but like this is. I, I'd love to tired. say that was a deliberate choice, but no, that was. We're it's... both tired. I'm still sneezy from my cold, latest cold. Yeah, and it's and it's Sunday afternoon. It's like half past three. So we're yeah. peak, so peak operating levels right here, right now. Yeah, and like, yeah, and I think 
it, it creates, perhaps one might say, a sense of paranoia, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Ever so slightly yes. on edge is where I want to yeah. be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, I haven't even taken any stims today. And yeah, basically, well, coffee's, coffee's a stim. Coffee's a stim. Um, but yeah, basically, paranoia. Why paranoia and not conspiracy theories, given that most of what we're going to be talking about is conspiracy theories and conspiracy culture and using the two probably interchangeably. However, uh, the reason I've done this is because, like, conspiracy theories, they're not something I like to generalise. I like to see each and every kind of, like, of the many there are, and your conspiracies and actual or conspiracy theories and actual conspiracies as things to be analysed uh, for their veracity and detail independently and on their own merits. Uh, whereas what we're looking into is paranoia. Um, paranoia being the kind of, like, the, the fertile ground from which all kind of like conspiracism and the um, and the kind of like the criteria for understanding it and just like yeah the kind of yeah the the, you know, the wellspring of the shit and like I think there's like kind of a point that I sort of will be coming back to in that like conspiracies are I don't know actually no that's like no, that's a point I want to say for later. <laughs> um, cut that bit. Uh, but yeah, so basically, like, we're, we're, we're looking at this in a kind of, like, literal sense, a historic sense, but also kind of a more thematic and aesthetic sense. Um, more on that later. But um, there was a quote that I kind of wanted to raise up front. And the reason I kind of, like, selected this is, one, it's very kind of succinct um, in expressing kind of a lot of the ideas that we're going to be talking about in a certain way. But... In doing so, it's also quite useful for showing the kind of like for illustrating how how it's possible to uh, lead to fairly kind of like reductive thinking, and indeed to kind of like overlook the um, the very real kind of like political discourses inherent in just like naming the conspiracy or naming paranoia and like um, you know, positioning yourself in a process of kind of terminology creep from an original kind of clinical expression into an aesthetic, into a kind of like mostly kind of straw man oriented like archetype um, of the, you know, such as Sean opened up the episode with uh, there. Um, but yeah, so it's a lot of preamble. I'm going to be, yeah. So this is a quote from a notable 1963 essay by one Richard Hofstadter. Uh, entitled, well, I think you're probably, you can, if you know it, you know it. It's the fucking, um, paranoid style in American politics, Hofstadter, 1963. It's a lengthy one, but I'm going to read it. Um, because it's, it's not just Sean who gets to do that on this show. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, huh. as a member of the avant-garde who is capable of perceiving the conspiracy before it is fully obvious to an as yet unaroused public, the paranoid is a militant leader. He does not see social conflict as something to be mediated and compromised in the manner of a working politician. Since what is at stake is always a conflict between absolute good and absolute evil, what is necessary is not compromise, but the will to fight things out to a finish. 
Since the enemy is thought of as being totally evil and totally unappeasable, he must be totally eliminated, if not from the world, at least from the theatre of operations to which the paranoid directs his attention. This demand for total triumph leads to the formulation of hopelessly unrealistic goals, and since these goals are not even remotely attainable, um, failure constantly heightens the paranoid's sense of frustration. Even partial success leaves him with the same feeling of powerlessness with which he began, and this in turn only strengthens his awareness of the vast and terrifying quality of the enemy enemy he opposes um so yeah so that quote was made in um 1963 and like interestingly like a year after um a year after the kennedy assassination but a couple of years before the warren commission i think is that is the chronology he's um talking i mean like the th the first kind of like thing he brings up is um is uh, uh mccarthy Joe McCarthy, Senator Joe McCarthy. Yeah, well, Senator. Yeah, McCarthy. Senator Joe McCarthy, and uh, it's very much a kind of like pointed, at you know he, in you know this, putting this in the kind of context of his work, he's talking a lot about specifically right wing conspiracy theorism. Um, he's talking kind of simultaneously about um, about like kind of like. Well, he was, you know, he was one of the first people to be writing about the kind of, like, Goldwater moral majority um, politics that was the kind of, like, er text of right-wing identity politics that we're still seeing visibly in the States at the moment. Uh, well, you know, has, has, you know, has always been a thing, but, like, has just kept ramping up, basically, <laughs> um, in new and, and freakish ways. But, um, but he was also talking about kind of, like, you know, that... Obviously, McCarthy was talking about like anti-communism there, um, but yeah, the reason the reason I kind of bring this up is like a couple. Well, on the positive, um, it is a very good um, it is a very good kind of diagnostic of you know a good kind of I don't know analysis and pathologization of the paranoid condition and like it's something we see to this day you know the, the idea of like it keeps building up there's never a resolution where you know we we talk we talk with endless frustration about people like david ike about like how it's like you'll do a big build up and kind of like create the vibe and the sense of something happening and then this you know when there's a kind of like when it when the, the the feeling is in the air that you're about to reach some sort of bombshell some sort of like analytical point and like an argument that really should have been in the preamble uh if this was going to be a good academic text it's just like ah pivot it's like ah but princess diana <laughs> it's like okay so we're building you know we're going to build up to the crescendo again but there's never actually a crescendo there's, there's, that, um, there's an element of when prophecy fails to all of us yeah as well. exactly like, because I'm, I'm i'm old enough to have been on the internet on the lead up to 2012 and the and I, it's not something that like comes up now but i remember like for years afterwards those spaces were still insisting that something happened then it was just well it was an energy shift or, or, or something like that. Well, a, a cosmic energy shift occurred in 2012, and that's actually what the thing always was. And, and this is like a, a very like by the numbers take on that, but that's not what you were saying before yeah. 2012. And afterwards, it's all sort of like, well, actually, no, that wasn't when the One World Global Government was going to be inaugurated. That was just the potential date it was going to be. Hmm. Again, this is very by the numbers, yeah. what conspiracy theories are and, and how they don't ever need to prove themselves in this path a lot because yeah. because they are because of the pathologies that keep them going. Yeah, and, and that kind of like... Um... What's the word? Manichaean kind of uh, element to them as well. Yeah, the absolute good, the absolute evil, and like the reason these things 
I don't know. Actually, no, that's something I want to kind of get on with, get onto in a minute. But and, um, yeah, so basically, um, just, just yeah, to, that is useful. Yeah, did you want to give an example of what we mean by that? Give an example of like a failed prophecy thing. Well, no, I mean yeah. sort of like the Manichaeanism. So Manichaeanism, I guess, like. Well, it's, um, it's, a, it's a simplistic yeah, absolute simplistic moral binary. A simplistic absolute moral binary, something like, you know, if we're going to go for like the QAnon example, um, like Trump is objectively good everything that he's done that's bad is a psyop or kind of like with some sort of like necessary fabrication to get into the heart of the evil and like possibly literally sent by god yeah uh, yeah and it's kind of like he's he's got he's just he's just you know suffering um miring himself in all the kind of venality of the pedophile elite in order to bring it down and um the pedophile elite are just like they're just wanton cruel power-hungry, um, utterly remorseless and utterly shameless creatures uh, who must, you know, be destroyed and are going to go to jail. Eventually. Eventually. It's coming. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah. And so, like, yeah, that's, that's the one... That's a good, useful thing that he does. However, um, I, you know, I bring up the positive to highlight the negative which is that, like, and this is going to be a kind of recurring theme in that, like, well, I don't know, let's just, like, let's just take a step back and look at the chronology in which this happened. This was, like, 1963, he's talking about a speech, uh, starting with a speech made in 1952 and, like, obviously going into the long history of, like, conspiracy thinking leading up to that point. But between, uh, it's, I don't know, what I wanted to raise is the fact that, like, yeah, we've been talking about modern stuff because, um, because... He is still frequently cited in contemporary publications when talking about conspiracy theory culture for this very reason, uh, because it's like, you know, because it's so succinct. And, uh, you know, the example I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards is like, there was like an Atlantic big, like a, a thing published in Atlantic, and in fact, a series of stories called like the Shadowlands, um, which is kind of like conspiracy culture in America now. And it's like, it's interesting because it's like, it's all liberal stuff and they, they omit a lot of things. And I think it's that omission is key because it's like, in the years since 1963, we've obviously had, you know, um, the Warren Commission. We've had a whole bunch of very verifiable shit that the US government has done, which has been awful and insane and every bit as crazy as the, um, as these conspiracies, as, you know, the more kind of like unhinged speculations that, you know, the... The, uh, the fervent speculations that uh, the paranoid mind can go into at 3am on an amphetamine vendor or whatever. Um, but yeah, and so that's like, that's one reason why it's like kind of like, we can't, we have to take it with a, a pinch of salt. The other thing, and this is what I was talking about with the kind of the inherent politics of, uh, of naming the paranoid, is one, it's like a useful straw man because it goes both ways. You can like, no, you're paranoid for thinking this and you're indulging these kind of like, um, heroic fantasies of bringing down the the villain and oversimplifying thoughts. You know that can that's as present in QAnon as it has been in RussiaGate. Um, in terms of you know, it, RussiaGate follows that model to an absolute T, including the frustrated prophecy thing. And we're going to be bringing it up a lot, I imagine. Um, but yeah, I kind of want to put a pin in the political element of it there because because um, like. Yeah, we've got so much else to talk about, but, and also it's kind of pertinent to so much else we're going to be talking about later. Uh, but yeah, so like, the other thing I was going to talk about was the fact that, um, well, this is tangentially, uh, right, not, not specifically related to the quote, but the, the article, as, as, um, as Sean was mentioning, 
uh, at some point in time. That like it's um, positioning itself as the kind of like <coughs> it's it's reading a pattern in that it's saying like yeah so this is conspiracy thinking in 1952. Here's us going back 50 years to kind of like late 19th century conspiracy theories about like probably Britain or Spain or something. And here's going back even further and it's like oh yeah Britain are kind of like gonna assault, you know, assail the new republic, it's being kind of taken out from under us, and different parties are poisoning the water supply in Washington. Freemasons, Freemasons Catholics, Jesuit, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, and it's just kind of, one thing it points to is the fact that, like, kind of, America has a kind of fairly unique relationship to the conspiracy theory, and this is something I wanted to, you know, when I was actually preparing the notes for this, um, one of the things I latched onto was the fact, was this idea that like, you know, this is fucked Americana season, we're doing a vibes-based episode, and I was like, um, I was like, yeah, I wanted to kind of make a kind of clarification up front that, um, that like, cons- you know, the paranoid mindset, these are uh, kind of Manichaean, uh, principles, and the kind of like, the, the willingness to see patterns is, is a universal thing to the human condition, and that we're just going to be looking, you know, identifying the American flavor of it. But I think kind of in the reading around it, I've kind of like leaned more towards the fact that like, no, as a, as a nation, America does have something of a unique relationship to paranoia and the nature of the conspiracy. And, you know, that this can be pinned to a number of things, um, you know, even leading up to the time of Hofstadter, uh, stuff like, you know, we, the, you know, the, the, the elements of this pathology can arise from, you know, the frontier mentality, isolation, the fact that, well, you know, and, 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 you know, um, the need to kind of, like, emancipate itself from imperial powers and then reckon with its new statehood. But the, I felt like, kind of, the, the more profound kind of component of that, or the most, the, the, what gives it that particular edge is the fact that, um, America, unlike, um, you know, older European nations, was founded on very explicit ideological um, constitutional principles of the Enlightenment and democracy. And, and it's this idea of, like, American innocence or kind of, like, the... What became kind of manifest destiny means that, like, the, the kind of... The statehood has a kind of... I mean, all states have a kind of, like body politic idea of like the, the allegorical ship of state but um the fact that like it 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 kind of was um it was in, it was more you know it's like if you think of america like a kind of like a new town a planned city whereas like old europe is like a medieval city kind of cobbled together and like getting new mayors and getting new in- civic infrastructures built on top of older things um so it's kind of like much clearer about where it originally stood and i think that edge means that kind of like Anything that's perceived as a threat to um, the state, the you know, the the United States, um, exists on both. Well, it gains a more kind of abstract level as a threat because it's both a physical and a philosophical threat, a kind of ontological hazard to the nature of America. Um, and that being kind of like a vast and expansive thing means the problems are vast and expansive. Yeah, something and, that like in the kind of um, conspiracism that you get in sort of the um, uh, sort of early 20th century, like 19th century, off, there's often be fixation on the idea of sort of like the the kings of Europe, mm. you know, the, the, the crowned heads of Europe are conspiring against us with the, the terror there being at this 
uh, despotic form of government, which is against sort of like the, the grand, the ideals of our grand republic, this shining mm. city on the hill. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, and we've only got like this one chance of doing something purer and better, and that thing is in danger. <laughs> yeah, and that that little light of 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 um, of modernity could be snuffed out by the dead hand of history. History. <laughs> Lucy, was, it, Lucy was just illustrating the, the dead hand yeah. there by batting <laughs> Rather around. feet motion. <laughs> um, <laughs> the effete hand of history. Um, yeah, so it's like, so that's like um, the like early stages of America in its kind of uh, evolution into global, well, like um, Western capitalist hegemon and going into nascent global hegemon. Uh, but in the latter part of the 20th century, a lot more shit came to light, which, um, which, you know, happened within America's borders. If, uh, if it I happened may, both... We, sorry? If I may, we go from Next Generation to Deep Space Nine. And that's why tonight <laughs> we're going to be talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Kaufman, 1978. I don't know. Matthew, I've lived in this city all my life. Somehow today I felt everything had changed. People were different. Not just Jeffrey, but everybody. Yesterday it all seemed normal. Today everything seemed the same, but it wasn't. It was a nightmare. It really became frightening. It was like the whole city had changed overnight. San Francisco in the late 70s. Long after the hippies are gone, a strange plant is being discovered all over town. City health inspectors Matthew, Donald Sutherland, and Elizabeth, Brooke Adams, are slowly becoming aware that something is very wrong. Elizabeth, Elizabeth's boyfriend, Jeffrey, starts acting cold and distant. Together, the two of them become aware of a growing, apparent mass hysteria of people becoming convinced that friends, colleagues, family members are being replaced somehow, though this is denigrated as pure delusion by Matthew's friend, the therapist, Dr. Kibner, Leonard Nimoy. Later, their friends Jackie, Nancy, Belichick, Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright, who run a health spa, discover a hideous half-grown clone of Jack. Matthew goes to Elizabeth to warn her and discovers her in the process of being replicated. An alien life form that creates identical though emotionless replicas of people while they sleep has infiltrated the city and is working to replace the entire population of the planet. The four friends get together and narrowly avoid being replicated, but their attempts to warn the authorities are unsuccessful. The group is separated. We learn that Dr. Kibner is in fact a pod person, and he and a replicated Jack unsuccessfully attempt to replicate Matthew and Elizabeth. They escape with Nancy, but they all know time is against them. Elizabeth eventually succumbs and is replicated. Matthew manages to destroy a lab where the pods are being grown, but they've already been shipped across the country, across the world. Finally, we see Matthew back at work in the health inspection department with the duplicated Elizabeth, everyone going about their day with eerie quietness and certainty. Finally, outside the, t the town hall, a still human Nancy hopefully approaches Matthew, only to realise with horror that he, too, has become a pod person! So, 
So we're talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, we are. 1978. 1978. Not the, the one... reason I directly reference that number. I, 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 I yeah. Yeah, no. Because yeah. there were, how many, Sean? Four. Yeah. There were four versions of this film. There's the original from the 50s. 1956. There's this one from 1978. There's one from 1993 called Body Snatchers. <laughs> and then one from 2008 called The Invasion. So between the two of them, we've got the whole title. The we've Coding seen scenes written by the Wachowski sisters. Yeah, so we've, <laughs> see, so we've seen... Between we've seen all three. We've seen the first three of them. Lucy didn't even know the two thousand eight one existed until yesterday. I was really and... hope because like when I saw Wachowski's like on like just like scanning the Wikipedia page, um, I saw like oh fantastic is this gonna be like another Wachowski sisters production that has just been psyoped out of existence somehow like Speed Racer. <laughs> and- more or less, like it just, it just sort well, of like. It, I mean, it's like it's got time to come out of existence, but the Wachowski sisters' um, involvement was minimal. But they, like, it's, I'm just fascinated by the lines sort of like with additional scenes by the Wachowskis <laughs> because, God, I bet they're very normal. Uh, that one's got think... Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig in it. I think I don't think anyone in the world has seen it. Um, the one from the fifties is very fun, but it's like it's a fifties film about the communists i like the idea the... of like uh lana which either lily or lana Wachowski, which i forget which one said it saying like oh yeah so body snatches is actually a trans allegory and daniel craig saying like i wasn't aware of this but that's cool <laughs> um like like our boy Keanu. yeah the 1993 one is before we get like before we get into like, the meat of the episode uh do we want to like it's fine uh, it's it's to... it's trying yeah. to have themes but it's, it's kind of a nothing it of a that, film that wonderful thing of like introducing the gayest character imaginable this this chick like this chick with like kind of like the dirty the Madonna kind of like blonde but it's grown out a little bit which looks kind of cool and the eyebrows haven't been dyed and uh, she shows up at like this like lame family's house um like wearing a fucking shows up in her red corvette with a leather jacket over a birthday party t-shirt <laughs> um and it basically shows up like meets the dad and gives the most like hey so I'm here to fuck your daughter like vibes imaginable then they go out to a bar and she's like yeah we're going to the bar and so you're going to a bar but yeah we're just going out I'm gonna show her around the military base it's <laughs> my because i'm a, like army brat and um and then they just have her immediately get together with a guy and i'm like for fuck's sake yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> it was so i don't i'm not I mean, gonna i'm not even gonna go so far as to say it's almost interesting because that would that would be giving it like far too much it's just a real nothing of a film it's all right it's kind of a bit more like the 50s one than the um than the 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 I mean, nothing. It's nothing like the seventy. It's just like it's more that the seventy-eight one is a radical departure than yeah, yeah like, than like material. Yeah, unless it yeah. turns out the two thousand and eight one actually is. It's just sort of like a yeah. totally lost classic. Like we can say with confidence, the seventy-eight one yeah. is the best version. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, that's just like Lucy falling off her stool there. <laughs> I was fucking with it. Um, but yeah, basically, <laughs> <out. laughs> yeah, basically, I don't know. Like, I know this is stuff that we like usually keep to the end of the episode, but I, you know, I, I like, I like, we've we've been we've been learning. And exchanging, you know, exchanging ideas with that that horror vanguard podcast. They do formalism at the beginning. We can talk a bit about production before we get into the real thrust. It's not. It doesn't have to be like the museum gift shop of the podcast. <laughs> often, in, 
my mind called it because you've certainly never heard me say that. But um, yeah, like one of the things I like is about that, like, yeah, despite being a radical departure from like the source material, which was a book by Jack Finney, which I think is over there. Um, <laughs> it's on, in the pile. This means nothing to a listener. <laughs> no, so down, 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 left, 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 down. Down, oh, down. that pile. Yeah, right at the bottom, next to the whiskey bottle. Yes. Which, by the way, had that to me. <laughs> this means nothing for the podcast, but, uh, I don't know. Just in a bit of a giddy mood. Yeah. Yeah, good old, uh, the, the v. Quote from a Abel Ferrara, who directed the 1993 <laughs> for 1993 film. No, the quote, this is a fantastic quote. A pretty awesome piece of work. Yep. <laughs> there you go, praise from Caesar. Is, is Abel Ferrara the guy that did fucking like King of New York and shit? I, I don't know. He was oh, such a banger film. This is irrelevant, but yeah, basically, I don't know. The one thing I did want to say is that like, um, that despite the 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 um the fucking the, the despite the the 1978 one being like really radically different uh, narratively and geographically, um. It's interesting, he keeps the names of the characters, like the Belichicks and the, is it Dr. Driscoll or whatever he's called, is, is the same. Um, but they changed the name of the, uh, direct, of the Leonard Nimoy psychiatrist um, to Dr. Kibner. And I think that might just be because um, in the book and, or the, and the other film, he's called Dr. Kaufman and is, is directed by um, Kaufman. Peter Kaufman. Peter Kaufman. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to identify with this character. Not to do. <laughs> well, maybe uh, just because... we'll get would, into. Or maybe just because it would be confusing. Yeah. I, so I, to I'm wrap really, up... The, well, sorry. I'm really hung up on that, on like, how the understatement of that remark is a pretty awesome piece of work. That's just some intense Stuart Lee energy from that. That's... Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Toilet book. <laughs> the fire. <laughs> okay. It is. He did King of New York. That's a fantastic film. Huh. Maybe we should... Irrelevant. Get him on the podcast. Get him on, <laughs> Get him on the pod. <laughs> well, we can say that to him. See if he reacts. Um, but yeah. Um, if anyone has any way of getting to Abel Ferrara, please let us know. Check his live. <laughs> live and hasn't done like something... He's 71. That was pr- prime interviewing... Prime retrospective interview age, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, it looks like... Yeah, they've... they've... Sean, visual... Audio media, but look at the picture they chose for his Wikipedia page. Oh, him hell. at Khan in 2017 doing a blap. <laughs> I'm just going to save that in case they take it down. <laughs> That's so good. Anyway, wrapping up this, like, real fucking edging of the episode. Lucy, do you um, want to talk about conspiracy yeah, well, no, I just wanted to wrap up this bunch of bullshit by saying, like, the reason why um, we've been thinking a lot about the other adaptations is because originally we were going to do an episode where we were like going to work through all the adaptations and I was going to read the book, which is boring. <laughs> it's not very good. And, um, and, then, like, and then we were going to do a bit of a compare and contrast and talk in general terms about like, oh, isn't the shift in culture interesting? And then we were like, actually, wait, no, there's so much more just to talk about um, the 1978 uh, film, which is head and shoulders above, like... It fucks, I think, you know, is the, is the weird signal consensus. It is such a good... It is super. Yeah. It really is. So, um, what is the difference? Well, I mean, like, well, I can go into a little... That that sets us up nicely for, like, talking about, like, uh, like what what kind of, like, cultural epoch was uh, 1978 Body Snatchers leaning into? 
um, you know, in thematically and in genre terms, because um, I think, as you mentioned when we were doing our first, like, just the closest picture of Abel Ferrara, <laughs> um, when we were uh, going through our kind of, like, preliminary thoughts about this, uh, yeah, it's safe to say that, like, the, um, the 56 one is very much kind of, like, Cold War paranoia, uh, like, reds under the bed. Communists. You know, communists. There's so many. And, you know, it's like, going back to um, the chronology we mentioned up front, it's like, yeah, 1952 was like the real kind of kickoff point of Red Scare. Um, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, the, 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 the best way I found of like approaching the shift um, in terms of like what changed between these two films is. Um, I think the best way of illustrating that is like actually using this kind of like clarification or taxonomy classification system that uh, a writer called Jesse Walker in the book that we both read, uh, United States of Paranoia, proposed where he kind of like broke them up into kind of like enemy above, enemy below, enemy without, enemy within. Um, there was there was also not the upper category, which isn't really relevant to this, but that's just for completion. Frenemy within. Like, <laughs> kind of is the benevolent conspiracy, but which uh, meant like Rosicrucians, the secret, <laughs> the, the secret chiefs, nice. that kind of thing. Nice, nice. That's just for completionism's yeah. sake. But yeah. Well, cool. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> Um, uh, we don't need to give examples for each of those because God forbid. They're, they're quite, it's quite self-explanatory. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they but, and they also obviously all kind of like blur together at certain yeah, points. Yeah, I mean, like, so what we're looking at, um, what we're looking at in terms of like, um, the nineteen fifties, it's a kind of like mashup of like enemy without becoming enemy within, and a little bit of enemy above. Whereas, um, the um the America of 1978 was far more interested in enemy above um like as as the key thing because like what happened you know i kind of like hedged this a little up front like what happened between then was the revelations about cointelpro about you know which was like the the fbi's um that was the fbi <laughs> yeah um, yes. massive domestic spy well like it wasn't just like surveillance they say like oh yeah we just we just surveilled people it's like no it was a lot of like harassment assassination blackmail um it was and just, just really fucking with people <laughs> yeah it's um if you i think i think i'm certain we've mentioned this on the pod before in some capacity or, or the other but it's like it was basically sort of like the kind of stuff that the stasi would do with dissidents it was i forget the word for it in german but like they yeah the stasi would engage in operations which meant literally like decomposition which was where they would like break into people's flats and like move shit around and things like that or like do, or do really weird stuff like send like sex toys to their spouses and things mm. like that in the post just to make them think they're going they're losing their mind yeah that, that kind of shit like uh, and like um they would for example sort of like post like fake horoscopes to like hippies and stuff like that because they knew they were into that or like oh, yeah. very very cryptic things or like pictures of like drawings of the scarab and sort of like beware and serious as an ascendance and things and, like that and they did kind of like um kind of i mean like <laughs> to say like oh they did this thing as well it's like they did so many things there is no limit to the number of things well no, there is obviously a limit but like it's indefinite the amount of shit they actually did but like one of the things was like pretty much like their own domestic version of um of the, uh, what was the thing the cuban thing the um the cuban the cuban sound cuban. weapon the cuban <laughs> sound weapon um, yeah no, i know what you mean what, so, you, what was that oh, fuck 
Yeah, the hornet, the fucking the the Cuban cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, the score box, the thing that may like literally might not exist. It might just be sort of like CIA types having a hangover. So they did the thing that doesn't exist. They just like where they left like kind of like they they left like a kind of like weird device on a guy like at a guy's flat and it was like kind of looked like it might be a um a listening device or some sort of some sort of spying or or you know like energy projection weapon but it was so obviously like just really ropely put together so if they took this to police they're like yeah i found this in my house and it's like well it looks like you found this you know you, you assembled this from things you found in your house yeah you know that kind of shit so like just yeah just discrediting and gaslighting also they gave everyone drugs they did like really irresponsible drug experiments they lied constantly about like not only what they were doing in wars but wars that they were or that they were doing and said they weren't um and then um and then just like yeah and then it all came out in kind of like little kind of leaks or limited disclosures. I mean, a lot of the COINTELPRO stuff came out just because it's like, is this citizen's investigation of the FBI just broke into their offices and they just found all this shit written down? Because they were like, oh yeah, cool. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they, they've had to like partially admit stuff and, you know, the admissions are kind of like a real drip feed of like creep of just like bits and pieces of fairly inconclusive stuff but what we're looking at is something vast also watergate was kind of sus uh that's something i really want to go into actually like how sus watergate actually goes because there are multiple levels to that but the thing the thing we're looking at here is the fact that like uh it's a conspiracy thriller about well it's like actually that's another question to get into but like yeah um People were aware of, of the government was doing fucked up stuff and this became, you know, a popular subject in artistic representations. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I wanted to uh, say on that point about uh, COINTELPRO uh-huh. and disinformation. Uh, obviously, it is our corporate position as a podcast that the UFOs are real, mm-hmm. um, naturally. But like um, a very good book on this is, and I think this is like the second or eighth time I've recommended it on the podcast, is Mirage Men by uh, Mark Pilkington, which is a fascinating uh, fascinating okay, look we, at the what did we reach out to him like we said we were going to in 2018 probably not no. uh, i think i think i might be mutuals on instagram with him maybe hmm. i think i met him one time i think Friends yeah Friends. yeah because i was for what for a while convinced that like i i think i confused you meeting him with like thogden meeting him or something this is irrelevant anyway him and thogden yeah anyway anyway, anyway it's a mirage mirage run by mark pilkington which is a fantastic look at the evolution of ufo lore um mm. in particular and there's a lot of stuff in there about majestic seven papers being written by the air force's intelligence op- office and then handed to especially gullible guy in the air force telling him oh this is very secret don't let anybody read these papers about the ufos and then and, and then yeah so yeah there's yeah. just lot it's a fascinating yeah. book about disinformation yeah. and also the ufos are real yeah. and that is what we are seeing right now is soft disclosure yeah soft disclosure soft disclosure it's like in yeah. midst great swirling myths mists yes. mists of myths of Tell, disinformation yeah. telling the truth to to create a lie like that kind of shit or telling you know or lying about a true thing or something um but basically yeah so just like dialing back all the bit omitting all the parts of that that happened after 1978 this is the cultural moment into which 
um, Body Snatchers 78 is happening and with which, you know, America is currently reckoning. Uh, and, like, it didn't just do that in this film. It was also a very popular genre at the time, uh, the conspiracy thriller genre. I, I put together a little, like, I mean, like, conspiracies have been, like, a popular theme in fiction because they are very useful and good as any kind of, like, most thrillers are probably conspiracy thrillers in some capacity or other. Um, but, like, we got some... We got a real crop. <laughs> what a crop. Of, um, of conspiracy thrillers in the 70s, um, which were, like... I, I have my own reasons for, like, theories as to why this all happened. At Please name it's, it's them. It's New Hollywood. It's stylish. It became very cool to talk about these things. And these are very cool films. Things like Marathon Man, Paral- 1976, Parallax View, 1974, Conversation, also 1974, All the President's Men, 1976. That's one's about Watergate, a borderline documentary reenactment. It's very what, dry. When did, we get, when did we get Boys from Brazil? Boys from... Oh. Was that the 80s? I think, no, Boys from Brazil was in this period as well. I yeah, think it's, it's... Boys it's... from Brazil... Uh, Brazil. 78. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, and Three Days at the Condor. Yeah, I was going to mention Yeah. And like, just to, just to, you know. And I also know that friend, friend of the pod, uh, Bob Kay, uh, is very keen on reading Sorcerer as a film yeah. about the Nazi international yeah. underground and uh, so on. Yeah. And like, we've got like, you know, we've got tropes of stuff in, in this and like, these are, Kind of tropes basically depicting a lot of the things we're going to be talking about and analysing as the episode goes on, especially because I want to talk about a lot about the deep state. Uh, but yeah, non-authority... Yeah, but uh, go on, sorry. No, just just one point. Like, uh, one interesting exception to this is 1963's The Manchurian Candidate, which is... It's a very different kind of film to this, even though it is like it is a conspiracy. Th- it is a conspiracy thriller. It's a tremendous film. Uh, and But it's born out of a different... It's born out of a very different period uh, as well because the and it's and it's the film that but it, it's worth mentioning in a conversation about the conspiracy thriller because it's the film that introduces the concept of brainwashing uh, mm. in a certain way and it is, which well not not introduced it but it deals with it in a very interesting way because the notion of brainwashing enters into popular consciousness in uh, in in the West due to the Korean War due to the sight of. Mm. Captured GIs, prisoners of war, captured by the uh, by the uh, North Koreans and the Chinese, um, disavowing U.S. imperialism on camera and so on, which led to a great to to this a great well, paranoid anxiety that uh, the communists had methods of completely rewriting, well, washing someone's brain, brainwashing, but um, despite the fact this was all very very conventional just sort of like well threatening and torturing people until they said what you wanted yeah. on camera there's, there's a nothing kind of direct channel from the part of the brain that stores secrets to um the page of an interrogator via the balls in a series of electrodes exactly yes yeah. uh which i don't think the... <sighs> i don't know like um <laughs> pretty dark loose yes yeah. <laughs> i mean like yeah, but so is carpet bombing an entire country. <laughs> yes, we are. We, we, we yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah we, like, we are. Thoughts and prayers with the brave people of the of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea mm-hmm. and their glorious Marshal Kim Jong Un. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Ah, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> so yeah, we've like, got so much to yeah, go through. And like, stuff. so that's like, I only, yeah, I just wanted to go like say like you know this is. Conspiracy thrillers of this kind of like counter borderline countercultural kind of new Hollywood thing. I've got I've got like I wanted to kind of like return to kind of like reckoning with what the genre looks like in hindsight. 
like after like as the lot as my as my final thoughts basically but yeah that's that is that um but also like one thing i would also kind of like flag up i don't know how this fits into either of our plans but it is significant to point out like you know and i make this kind of like differentiation also in reference to some of the earlier shit that i was talking about with QAnon and things in that like what we're talking about is largely very kind of like non-supernatural or sci-fi kind of like political conspira- political conspiracies and like uh, political you know not supernatural or kind of horror-y thriller-y cons- conspiracies yeah. and like what's significant is that like yes Body Snatchers is a sci-fi horror film but it is working much more consciously with these tropes as part of the conspiracy genre and it's kind of like working on a kind of level of analogy yeah um so yeah i just wanted to make that kind of yeah because like films like um the parallax view and uh, actually and the ipocris files which is um that's uh, i think that's the 60s actually the ipocris files yeah. the british from the ipocris files um <laughs> right, but, but it was kind of like late 60s i think yeah don't, don't quote me on that coming, but, like, but like yeah but yeah the yeah obviously like it would be a mistake to describe them as science fiction films but they have a kind of they do both. Like I mentioned both of those films in particular because they do use the trope of the brainwashing device still, mm. which is obviously ground, grounded in science fictionist ideas. Um, but that, but again, like 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 you said, so the thing that makes Invasion of the Body Snatchers distinct is this a film called Invasion of the Body Snatchers mm. and not yeah. The Parallax View or it, Three Days of the Condor. And it is like, interesting, you know, they kept they kept like. The very, um, the very 1950s title, which I think was a nice touch, which the 90s one didn't, uh, despite like it, being very, you know... Body Snatchers. Body Snatchers. It's, I mean, like... Which is very, like, a very you, 90s yeah. move as well, the, like, like The Cure becoming Cure for a while. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, like, um, you know, The Thing, the kind of, like, source, quote-unquote source material, well, you know, like, the well, source material is, source is material. Who Goes There by John Campbell. Is it John Campbell, I think? Yes. But the, the first, like, filmic adaptation of that was the thing from the thing from another world yeah Yeah. and it's like they didn't do that with the thing but they did with invasion of the world they did they did keep the delightful font for the thing the the title font is the same okay nice that's not relevant because we're not talking about the thing we're talking about invasion of the body snatchers but there you go Oh, we didn't for the Lucy's holding up the um, laser disc. I realised, not not like a soundtrack record. I thought no, the in the film though, the ti- when the title appears, you know, it, like yeah, electric sparks, through. and that is the the classic font. Yeah. So there you go. Bang a film. Okay, okay, that's not <laughs> which we've already covered. We already like, covered. And, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> we, we should. We'll just start doing the stuff we like again at a certain point. I'm sure. But actually, yeah, I think I just wanted to put a little. Um, pin it well like a little kind of like rep uh, a little you know, a little, yeah. little tie into that point about making that distinction because we actually have that distinction illustrated rather wonderfully by the um the wonderful like kind of couple dynamic of the Belichicks that is uh uh, Jeff Goldblum Jeff- and Veronica Cartwright, Cartwright. not who. <laughs> Did you say Jessica? <laughs> no, I nearly her her character is Nancy, <laughs> and she Cartwright. not not to be mistaken uh, with Nancy Cartwright. Nancy is played by Marge of the Simpsons. She's the voice of Bart. Bart Simpson. Mm. She's the Scientologist one. Oh yeah. So yeah. yeah so right. Nancy Belichick played by Veronica yeah. Cartwright, not to be confused with Bart Simpson played by Nancy Cartwright. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the thing with that right is that like um the. The Jeff Goldblum character, I can probably insert the quote here, he's very, he's very nuts and bolts conspiracist. He, or like, you know, kind of political, like, not even, 
he knows what he should and shouldn't say to the police. <laughs> that kind of thing. He, he's distrustful, but like he kind of like uh, he's. He's kind of like, you know, he's got his shit together, but also kind of like goes off in directions. His mistrust is like kind of like uh, at all levels. It's not just kind of like self, um, it's not just immediate self um, uh, preservation. But his girlfriend um, is much more into the weird shit. So, and, so yeah. he, he is you and she is me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We, did, we were trying to figure out which one of us is Mulder and Scully. Because I mean, like, well, I mean, like... <sighs> you're the catholic one anglo-catholic yeah, th- thank you yeah. <laughs> but yeah basically like there's uh i think they encapsulate that like their relationship dynamic in that wonderful line it's like well you know it could come as a plant or a bacteria you know that the invasion comes that first but, but this is the bella checks not yeah. modern scully sorry <laughs> no, this is us <laughs> um, mean you. it's like why do you always expect metal ships and <laughs> jeff goldblum uh belichick oh, yeah, the jeff goldblum belichick replies i've never expected metal ships <laughs> um and you know <laughs> weird signal official position we've always expected metal ships um but anyway uh yeah that's 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 the, i think we can maybe close it out on, on that because that's a, i think I, that's all about as about as much as i wanted to say of that bit we don't have to leave the city nothing changes you can have the same life the same clothes the same car but what happens to us You'll be born again into an untroubled world, free of anxiety, fear. Wait. Hate. David, you're killing us. That's not true. David's right. Your minds and memories will be totally absorbed. Everything remains intact. You've never agreed with him in your life before. What are you talking about? What are you... Uh, God, does that mean it's yeah. my turn to talk about the counter? Well, the, uh, the only other kind of, like, non... Um, uh non-Donald Sutherland uh, major character other than the girlfriend character because um, I'm bad with names is uh, is played by Leonard Nimoy who played uh, Mr. Spock in Star Trek he did who's a uh, quote-unquote psychiatrist yes you know like a psychiatrist a psychiatrist yeah 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 are you, are you, are you setting me alienist up? boy uh, but like he seems indicative of a certain cultural moment uh, in the kind of like neuropsychosexual history of America in the 20th century. I believe this is in your wheelhouse, Sean. Well, it's funny that you should say that, Lucy, because I do indeed have that written down in front of me. So, <laughs> hey, hey, we're a smooth, oiled running machine. No <laughs> if, if, if for one thing, it's oiled. <laughs> God, this is, wait, why is this the silly episode? <laughs> uh, because we've got our mojo back and everything's yeah. very, very good. Yeah. Okay, right, right, mm. right, right. So to get into the zone with this, we, we Lucy and I have had health health fitness smoothies. Which is <laughs> you know, we, we've had we've had our health fitness smoothies and I have put on my beads. My beads. Uh, to really get into the zone because I'm dialing back the numbers here. That's not a thing people say. I'm taking us back to the 60s. 
I need, I can't, I can't let this slide I was like, which one of us is Mulder and which one is Scully? You're literally wearing beads and I'm wearing a crop circle necklace and a t-shirt that says, I want to believe with a picture of Henry Zabrowski and some aliens on it. I think, I think this is pretty clear cut. I, I think it is. On this, in this particular dynamic, yes it is. Yeah. Anyway. <coughs> Maybe I'm Scully's sister, though, because she's like crystals and beads. Maybe I'm Scully's dad. No. No, no. I'll never be cool enough to be Scully's dad. Anyway. 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 Okay. So, uh... Okay, so this film is often talked about in relation to the counterculture of the 60s. Uh, Christian Knöpler... Full disclosure, I have not read his book. I'm a busy man with a demanding job. This is just what it says on the Wikipedia article about the film. I feel that's limited disclosure. <laughs> uh, he, he suggests the film is a kind of lamentation for the counterculture of the 60s. And one of the things he noted, like he's noticed, is that the Belichicks, um, Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright's uh, characters, who again, they own like a mud bath health spa mm. thing. Um, they're the hippie, anti-government, esoteric wellness types, and they, they're the ones who adjust to the alien replicons from Beyond the Moon thing quite easily, uh, in comparison with the other characters. And and obviously, you know, this implies a certain sympathy with the legacy of the counterculture, that, you know, these, like, the paranoid types are the ones who actually are onto something, even though, even if it doesn't really help them at the end of the day. Um, however, I'm not at all convinced that the film's relationship with the counterculture is that simple. I, and also, you know, just out of fairness' sake, like I said, I haven't read uh, Christian Knopfler's book. I'm certain her Knopfler's book is very, very good and very, very nuanced. But this is me. This is what I'm saying. So, Lucy. Hello. You've read Heidegger, haven't you? No. <laughs> that's, that's your job. But you've read, you've read the poet Hildelin, though. Uh, that's your job. <sighs> well, well then. I'm the politics well, one. <laughs> well then. Uh, so, Heidegger often... A turn of phrase or a rhyming couplet that Heidegger borrows from the poet Hölderlin is... Where the danger is, the saving power grows also. If I had thought ahead enough, I would have had the German there as well to, to read from. I mean, but um, no one's going to... No one's... Uh, German just... No, actually, fuck it, I will. Because... Yeah. Uh, it's like... I actually can't seem to find it. Okay, I can't find it. I can't find the original German easy enough to warrant carry on looking through it. So that's irritating, but there we go. Excuse me. So, where the danger is, the saving power grows also. So, um, Heidegger uses that turn of phrase in his writing on technology, on the danger of technology. Technology and, traps. So exactly, exactly. But what is the trap? So, for Heidegger, the danger of technology is that it threatens human beings in their essence in their being humans uh, but by uh, acknowledging that the danger to human beings is a danger to do with essences that once again restores to thought the question of essences uh, and thus you know and, and so the question of essence the question of being can once again be articulated thus where the danger is the saving power grows also that's why he's using that nothing to do with this film but i wanted mm -hmm. to explain where okay. that's coming yeah, from yeah, it's good. It's good. but what if the reverse were also true. And I mean that in the sense of talking about the much lamented, the much nostalgified um, counterculture of the 60s, that where the saving power is grows the danger also. Namely, the 
somewhat maybe trite uh, basically i mean the kind of trite things that are uh, what if within the liberation the liberatory potential of a radical movement there lies dormant the seeds of a new authoritarianism and yeah okay i'm aware that's kind of that's a kind of rope point to make but i i think if we pursuing that line of thought in in um with the in terms of how this film deals with questions, well, basically deals with the legacy of the 60s, and in particular with therapy, with, with psychiatry, I think we end up in quite interesting places by pursuing this line of thought, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so, okay, point number one, the 60s were a CIA psyop and i will hear no difference on yep. that matter yep. I, I i don't actually mean that but the right. like but, but well well maybe or maybe i do okay but like the 60s what the 60s were right was a great clearing space right is a moment it's a moment of clearing out and an opening up of new possibilities but kind of what we get from that is the 70s where everybody is uh, a pedophile now mm-hmm. uh so it's kind mm-hmm. of like the sit like the 70s are like the horrible kind of like mutant flowers growing up out of like the beautiful garden of the 60s and actually there is there's a line in this film which um which i noted down which when when uh, elizabeth um brooke adams character is trying to identify what these weird like pod flowers everybody's finding everywhere ah she's going through she's going through a plant encyclopedia and she misidentifies it as uh, as an epilobic which means like a crossbreed plant and she re- reads out from her book their rapid and widespread growth was even observed in many of the war-torn cities of europe indeed some of these plants may thrive on devastated ground so uh-huh. 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 The devastated ground left over after the failed revolution, maybe. Anyway, mm-hmm. so the the whole sixties were a psyop thing. Is it's a meme, or you know, and as is the case with every political meme, it's both deeply ironic and highly serious. It's, but it's a meme that comes out of like left parapolitical circles, and basically, it's what if all of the like the 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 explosion of psychedelics in the 60s uh that's fucking mk ultra mass experimentation that's all there ever was that's why that's what that was that's what the hippie movement was that's what the summer of love was it's just fucking mk ultra co intel pro um fucking around with us seeing what they can do to us discovering all of these new ways of chemically manipulating people and so on and so on and so on and so on. Now, I'm, I'm genuinely, I'm not saying that actually is the case. I have no idea. It probably was in some degree or the other because these things always have a little bit of truth in them somewhere. Mm. But the... Mm, but what's but this give, does give us a kind of like an angle that I want to like delve into a little bit, which is namely what the 60s does mean culturally what it does like demonstrate is this and this is a new idea for like people you know sort of like you know the middle classes of 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 united states of america for the english-speaking world is that it's just really like hammering home the idea that there's actually a great deal more depth and potential to mind and consciousness than really was previously commonly considered at the very least you know that like that is what you know the psychedelic revolution like it does demonstrate that actually there are a lot of things that the mind is capable of and obviously this gets pushed into esoteric directions by some people which i'm absolutely not going to push back on as well as more more mundane stuff about the fact that you know you can you can experience new forms of perception you can experience new ways of being with people through the consumption of psychedelics and so on however 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 if this is what is revealed in the 60s that the the breadth and the depth of mind does that mean that the powers that be 
see in that how deep their mechanisms of control can actually reach as well, right? Mm. Are you with me so far? Yeah, I'm with you on that. You're yeah. with me, so I, ho- I hope you I are. I mean, there was, a, there was a quote I tried... I, I meant to find for this, but it was like... Um, it was actually from a different podcast I was listening to about Synanon, which wasn't the last podcast series. It was a, a true on an episode, but like, it was something to the effect of... Um, Wait, is this the right time? Yeah, it's basically um, the moment, you know, the US's kind of adoption of um, psychoanalysis, when psychoanalysis came to the US, which, you know, you can see illustrated rather poetically in Adam Curtis's uh, documentary, uh, The Century of the Self, even though Adam Curtis is himself a psyop. Uh, But (laughs) basically, it's like, I mean, like, that was the whole thing with, like, Freud's cousin. Basically, was that like Freud's nephew? I think it's his yeah, nephew. His nephew. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, Freud's nephew kind of like taking his uncle's teachings and being like, oh, what if I can get people to buy a Coke from looking at a dick in a mirror or something? Um, and it, it, it works on me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, basically, it's like that, that's kind of like one small fragment of it. It's like, it's basically um, like the adoption of, you know, the uh, when when, you know, U.S. state infrastructure came to understand that there was this thing called psychoanalysis and that, like, oh, brains can be picked apart like what we might call computers one day, then, um, which I think we're already, you know, we're already thinking at that point, but um, basically it was, like, it was the shift of um, the very discipline of psychoanalysis from this kind of dilettantish, um, you know, discussion, like, very kind of poetic thing. Freud loved making kind of, like, analogies with archaeology and classical studies and things into, um, into a mass industrialized process, um, that, uh, could be, could be applied in the interests of both capital and security, which are very much interlinked. Yeah. And, and, well, I... and, and, yeah, and it's kind of like, I just kind of like, since we're trying to make, you know, we're we're looking at like what's distinctly American about this. That's the most American thing imaginable. Exactly. What they've done to our boy Freud. I'm not sure I want to describe him as my boy, but uh, Uh, but that that is a point I will be coming to uh, in in due course. But thank you. Yes. So one thing that's really important to emphasize is that this film takes place in San Francisco and like San Francisco was the 60s it's where like we had that i'm not actually saying where the quote at the start of the episode came from that's uh if you didn't recognize it that's joan didion's essay slouching towards bethlehem which is about her like upsetting yeah, but if you didn't her... get that what are you even doing this <laughs> you <laughs> fucking rube but yeah and that's about basically her upsetting spring holiday in haight ashbury uh, <laughs> uh yeah and yeah it's the, it's the place of haight ashbury it's the place of the summer of love it's the place and in Deleuze and Guattari we're at that bit, we're at the bit we're at the bit, I'm holding my copy of A Thousand Plateaus I've got my copy of Anti-Oedipus in front of me as well (laughs) that 1977 um, open letter is on the fire (laughs) (laughs) in our CIA burn bowl which they installed in every office for Deleuze and Guattari's sort of mytho-geo-philosophy of America, the West Coast is a site of world historical importance. To quote, to quote the introduction on the rhizome in a thousand plateaus. Yeah. <sighs> a bit. 
But there is the rhizomatic West with its Indians without ancestry, its ever-receding limit, its shifting and displaced frontiers. There is a whole American map in the West where even the trees form rhizomes. America reversed for directions. It puts in the wet, it puts its orient in the west, as if it were precisely in America that the earth came full circle. Its west is the edge of the east. And later on, and this is a quote that, that um, I think many of you might rec will remember from uh, Bodies Without Organs, RIP. This is the wrong page. Uh, Everyone involved in that podcast is still alive. Everyone is way. still alive. Just the podcast said, that itself. That's kind of done. So, like, we, yeah. were, we were talking on sort of like the DMs recently. Like, we're going to get them on Weird Signal. Don't worry, everyone. Anyway, oh, God. <laughs> Here we go. Um, do I want to read this bit as well? Yeah. yeah. Are you fucking. <laughs> is that a question? What? <laughs> do I want to read this bit as well? Okay. Um, no, I'm actually not going to read that. Okay. But I've already got the now. All right. Yes, um, yeah, so we'll just edit that. You've done, done the build up now. We've got to read something. <laughs> we'll just edit that bit out. It's fine. No. <laughs> okay. I'll read just... it for my bed. Entertain me. Indulge me. Okay, I'll read the whole passage. And this is one of like the most like cryptic passages in Delusion Retarded. Nice. And full disclosure, like this was not disclosure. So I had to limited there disclosure. It. Limited disclosure. Thanks to uh, Ed Berger, this I came across this first on his. Uh, on his blog, I forget the reciprocal contradictions. There we go. Uh, I'm just going to read the whole th the whole damn thing. Uh -huh. Every time desire is betrayed, cursed, uprooted from its field of eminence, a priest is behind it. The priest can the priest cast the triple curse on desire: the negative law, the extrinsic rule, and the transcendent ideal. Facing north, the priest said, "Desire is lack. How could it not lack? How could it not lack what it desires?" The priest carried out the first sacrifice, named castration, and all the men and women of the north lined up behind him, crying in cadence, Lack, lack is the common law. Then facing south, the priest linked desire to pleasure, for there are hedonistic, even orgiastic priests. Desire will be assuaged by pleasure, and not only will the pleasure obtain obtain not <laughs> and not only will the pleasure obtain silence desire for a moment, but the process of obtaining it is already a way of interrupting it, of instantly discharging it and unburdening oneself of it. Pleasure as discharge, the priest carries out the second sacrifice, named masturbation. Then facing east, he ex exclaimed, Huissance is impossible, but impossible huissance is inscribed in desire, for that, in its very impossibility, is the ideal, the, oh god, there's in the French bit here, I don't know how to pronounce, the Jean monk a jouir, uh, right. that is, uh, that right. is life. Probably all right, who cares? <laughs> the priest carried out the third sacrifice, fantasy of the thousand and one nights, 120 days, while the men of the East chanted, yes, we will be your fantasy, your ideal and impossibility, yours and also our own. But the priest did not turn to the West. He knew that in the West lay a plane of consistency. But he thought that way was blocked by the columns of Hercules, but had led nowhere and was uninhabited by people. But what is but that is where desire was lurking. West was the shortest route east, as well as to the other directions, rediscovered or deterritorialized. So in the West, so again, this is the passage West, and in that, it's unclear, I think, if... In, when they talk about the cardinal directions there, if they mean specifically the cardinal directions of, you know, like placed in the United States, I think that is, uh, I think that's Ed Berger's um, take on it, which is, a, which is a sensible take because, you know, the Protestantism of the North, the kind of Catholic descended slave 
luxuries of the south the obsession with the europe thing in the east but the west and what is all and what is america if not the entirety of the west for europe the great mm. you know the the the, the, uh, the deadlands to the yeah. west right it become like it has the potential of become of it has it's not just the potential it is the plane of consistency it is where we meet where we become the body of our organs where desire is opened up and the flows can really flow mm. right so yeah. that's that's why i want to like emphasize that's stuff i want to emphasize there sort of like the importance of this being san francisco this being california right mm. to that effect um would you say this was a fairly atypical sort of priest I might even call him an unusual priest. Claxon. Yes. Uh, we've also forgotten to mention the uh, one of the first fucked up guys you see. The one of the first fucked up guys you see, and it's ne- and and I for- I completely forgotten about this, but sort of like and basically the one of the first things you see in the film, just a priest on a swing in the playground, just looking at you, just looking at you. If mind is actually vast and highly adaptable. Does that mean it can also be forced into an even deeper level of ordering than had previously been thought possible? Uh, because adaptable is kind of another word for malleable, right? Mm-hmm. Again, so and and this is exactly and certainly like the the rosy nostalgic picture. I and mean, this is such an obvious thing to say, but like the rosy nostalgic picture we have of the sixties, it's not entirely accurate. It's for example, and for example, like hippydom isn't a site of queer liberation, for instance. It was often very... Like, it was often very, very... Patriarchy, but make it funky. Kind of, yeah. Like, it being very much about sort of, like, I, as a dude, have a right to many girlfriends, more (laughs) than it being... Yeah. Um, So, it's just, like, kind of... If you're thinking about the 60s, like... Just bear in mind that Kez was also happening in the 60s. (laughs) I want... One thing on a historical note is that you know, like, um, queer, like, the gay, like, the original gay liberation movement, although, like, it, although, like, obviously, like, it does emerge out of, like, the greater sort of, like, countercultural moment of the 60s, but it is much more child of the 70s and of the 60s, mm. and the, you know, uh, gay political activism that exists at the time is the activism of groups like the Matakin Society, which, uh, the, the homophile movement, which is very conservative. It's very much about, so like, we're good Americans too. Rather, and it takes the 70s for, like, the radical turn of queer liberation to come along, which feels very alien to the hippie thing. Because mm. the, the hippie thing has a kind of... It, it, it's not... It's difficult to think of it as being a particularly political movement, and at least in a coherent program that like programmatized kind of way we should cover and, cruising one day just, just, cruising. not just the not just the wholesome sunday activity of, <laughs> anyway um <laughs> so and uh, and i want to refer back to joan didion here um uh again so from the same essay i can't use again just a couple of quotes that like sum this double character up very nicely Barbara bakes a macrobiotic apple pie, and she and Tom and Max and Sharon and I are eating it. Barbara tells me how she has learned to find happiness in The Woman's Thing. She and Tom had gone somewhere to live with the Indians, and although she first found it hard to be shunted off with the women and never to enter into any of the men's talk, she soon got the point. That's where the trip was, she says. Barbara is on what is called The Woman's Trip, to the exclusion of almost everything else. When she and Tom and Max and Sharon need money, Barbara will take her part-time job modelling or teaching kindergarten, but she dislikes earning more than 10 or $20 a week. Most of the time she keeps house and bakes. Doing something that shows your love that way, she says, 
is just about the most beautiful thing I know. Whenever I hear about the woman's trip, which is often, I think a lot about nothing says loving like something from the oven, and the feminine mystique, and how it is possible for people to be the unconscious instruments of values they would strenuously reject on a conscious level. But I do not mention Mr. Barbara. And later on, in the same essay, she quotes a, a, a question from an anonymous uh, psychiatrist in San Francisco. Anybody who thinks this is all about drugs has his, has his head in a bag. It's a social movement, quintessentially romantic, the kind that occurs in times of real social crisis. The themes are always the same. A return to innocence, the invocation of an earlier authority and control, the mysteries of the blood, an itch for the transcendental, for purification... Right there, you've got the ways that romanticism historically ends up in trouble, lends itself to authoritarianism. When the direction appears, how long do you think it will take for that to happen? So, again, this is what I mean when I said where the saving power is grows the danger also, right? Because the 60s were obviously a moment of great cultural, social, political experimentation and awareness and openness of consciousness expansion. But... Along with all of this, you still you have this lurching authoritarian potential to all of it. In again, the revelation that the mind is very, very malleable. Something that, like, I'm not saying this was unknown to humankind and stuff like that, but it's like on display enormously that you can fuck people up so much if you know what you're doing right. Much more so than like the 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 simple brainwashing of the communists in the Korean War. You just threaten someone and zap their balls a bit, right? And I think that ball zapping was actually a thing. I think it's just... <laughs> well, at least in spirit. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, so the sixties were certainly a moment of radical destratification, to use the Deleuze Guattarian term. However, that when Deleuze and Guattari talk about destratification, they're very clear that this isn't something that just automatically leads to. Um, unlimited resource, right? It isn't. It isn't a pure analoid, simple return to the innocence of Edenic pleasures kind of thing, right? It's destratification, making itself a body without organs and so on, can simply just produce new, updated, essentially, and radical forms of control of fascism. The word I kind of didn't want to end up using on this episode, but there you go. It's never as simple as just freeing. It's never just as, as simple as just freeing desire, because desire isn't simply innocent. And here we go again. This, right. is from, this is again from our boys, Elias and Gradari. Uh-huh. <laughs> the body without organs is desire. It is that which one desires and by which one desires. And not only because it is the plane of consistency or the field of imminence of desire. Even when it falls into the void of too sudden destratification or into the proliferation of a cancerous stratum, it is still desire. Desire stretches that far. Desiring one's own annihilation, or desiring the power to annihilate. Money, army, police, and state desire. Fascist desire. Even fascism is desire. There is desire whenever there is the constitution of a body without organs under one relation or another. It's a problem not of ideology, but of pure matter. A phenomenon of physical, biological, psychic, social, or cosmic matter. That is why the material problem confronting schizoanalysis is knowing whether we have it within our means to make the selection, to distinguish the body without organs from its doubles, empty vitreous bodies, cancerous bodies, totalitarian and fascist. 
the test of desire, not denouncing false desires, but distinguishing within desire between that which pertains to stratic proliferation or else too violent destratification and that which pertains to the construction of, of the plane of consistency. Keep an eye out for all that is fascist, even inside us, and also for the suicidal and the demented. Aha, so what, what, what if the 60s were bad? Mm. Well, they were bad, but they did give us beads. <clears throat> and so who's to say if they're bad or not? So moving us out of the 60s into the 70s. So it's, well, no, actually, they're not quite yet. But like, okay, so it's out of the hippie thing that we get what we could, like cult, call cults. What we mean in the modern sense of cult, it does come out of hippiedom and specifically like comes out of like the Jesus freaks, um, like children of God, um, people's temple and so on. That's where they're coming out from, like hippies, hippies for Christ, hippies for Jesus, right? Um, but this is, and, and I will also acknowledge that groups like the Church of Scientology like predate all of this, that goes back to the 50s, but like, although it was always ever so slightly off, like the Church of Scientology doesn't really become what we really think of it as being quite yet, you know, that's not, not to say it was ever innocent, it never was, it was always exploitive and ruin, ruining to people, but it's not quite that yet, right? But we do get the process church of the final judgment uh we get and obviously you know, the cult of the 60s is manson's family and all of that uh who may or may not have had something to do with scientology and the process but well, there we go but we also get out of this human potential movement stuff we get again sort of like aa alcoholics anonymous predates this but it's also like that kind of spiritual mythopoetic aspect of it is something that again doesn't come from this but it all gets caught up together with this uh this therapeutic term right out of you know this is where all of that a lot of that energy and creativity goes into is that it goes in this therapeutic direction and into the cultic direction and what we see in these what we see in the cults right what we see in the cult is a charismatic authority figure who appears to have a kind of uncanny level of control over people and people submit themselves apparently voluntarily or seemingly voluntarily to the leader out of a desire for healing um but this has to be a total submission to the group and to the leader a total uh a total compromising of themselves and their individuality to the group being which and again this this and of and again so like this kind of goes back to the hippie thing to the communal living thing to the intentional community thing genealogically genealogically even if it isn't the only influence there but less dramatically but kind of more sinisterly this also coalesces into the figure of the therapist who again sort of like the therapist like psychoanalysis is not a child of the sixties or the seventies nor is other forms of therapy but it feels like. The 60s going into the 70s is when, like, the therapist as a kind of public acknowledged figure really starts to come into their own, right? Mm. And I also kind of want to say, like, it's not just the 70s isn't just the decade of the cult, it's the decade of the therapy cult as well. It's, um, or like, cult or places where acts of where radical therapy and cultic living become hard to distinguish with like the most obvious example being synanon obviously and and you know and we also get you know just weird sort of like fad crap like primal therapy um it's where we get neuro-linguistic programming comes out of this milieu as well um and it's like it's like 
con the consciousness that was let loose in the 60s now has to be disciplined in new and more modern ways in the 70s, which is why I want to talk about the figure, the character of Dr. David Kibner, but Lucy, you have a point. But there, I mean, I just wanted to flag up, like, it's interesting that this progression comes in the kind of, like, 1970s leading up to the kind of, like, nascent yuppification of, like, uh, the American middle class. And it's like, yeah, a lot of ex-hippies did get very wealthy in one way or another. I don't know, I actually don't know why that was, but it's like, yeah, they, they, they wound up, you know, they didn't, they didn't sell out, they bought in. You know, yeah. they, um, and this is something that is yeah. like, and I think this is this is kind, and like this is, I think there is kind of like some like swerf like um and like sort of like moralist like complaining stuff to this, but something that I think I think it comes from Andrea Dworkin. I remembering this is like the, this notion that sort of like free love leads to the porn industry is one of the ways this is sometimes articulated which is not something I'm saying I'm not necessarily no. like, like um I'm not as like, a podcast uh, we are not saying we're not we're not saying that but that is kind of like well, that's kind of what well, actually wait no am I saying maybe we are I don't maybe know maybe we are like what, what's wrong with pornography you know like the things that are wrong with pornography is like it's Pornhub it's not fucking you pay for pornography that's well, the, the weird signal position <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what the point I'm making there is this notion about like the idealism of free love leads to what is an exploitative industry like it is an ex like all industry is exploitative you know it's not uniquely exploitative mm. but it is still is taking what was meant to be sort of like this wonderful edenic return to innocence and it makes it you can you know you can buy it though yeah. you know and it's something that is a product to sell and like you know like i want to you know very clear what you know what i mean with that like i did like i did, I did preempt that by saying i this like yeah, has yeah, some yeah. energy <laughs> to it but it's still a good way of articulating yeah, that yeah, point yeah. but yeah, yes, I, yeah yeah uh yes anyway anyway god i'm gonna be cancelled now no um, you're not <laughs> so i'm cancelling myself <laughs> no, no, that, no myself. you're not is to the people who would dream of cancelling you sure <laughs> Oh God, my consumptive podcast, the cough. There we mm. go. So, okay, back to Dr. Kibler. Okay, so we don't know when in the film he gets replicated mm. and as possible he is from the moment. Like, we, he's already been replaced before we, like, first meet him. Yeah. The film leaves that kind of ambiguous. Um, but when we first see him, at, he's at he's launching his latest book and we hear... Yeah, he's very prolific, and there's that line from Jack, which also, like we've talked about amongst ourselves before, it's also a line that's used in Hannibal, the TV series. I, I raised this on our Hannibal episode, and at the time, I was like, why the fuck did they do that? That seems like a completely pointless and arbitrary thing to do. And then in the context of the Hannibal episode, oh, it's because he's body snatching the guy. Uh, he's killing a guy and assuming his identity. <laughs> so you're thinking body snatchers for loading... Yeah, so that, that that's actually what that is about. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but he's I he's a wrong he, listener. <laughs> so he's at, he's at, he's at, so but what we see him doing is at this book launch is he makes a, a therapeutic intervention. You know, a woman comes up to him and says, "My husband isn't my husband. He's 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 a different person. He's been replaced." And he does this very like he's very he's very calm. He's very like caring, yeah. sort of like enlightened towards him and so on, and talks her into going back to her husband. You know, that's what he, he does there. It's a really upsetting thing to think about, really, because there's an air of him... It, almost, it feels like he's telling a woman's, like, being emotionally or physically abused by, by her spouse to go back to him because maybe you did something. It's medical gaslighting. Yeah, no, that is exactly yeah. what it is. It's, it's a very dark moment. And again, we, the, the film, the text of the film doesn't make it clear if it's because he's a pod person or if he's just that he just thinks this, you know. And Did he independently find out about the pod people and just immediately sign Brilliant. up. Brilliant! <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Just, like, sign like, me the pod. Just, like, 
sucking on at the end of a pod. It's like, well, this make it too fast. You can just go straight into my mouth. <laughs> and but like after this, when do he... I need to take off my driving gloves? <laughs> so it's for fucking some reason wearing. Uh, on, on yeah, it was a golfing thing. In my, I, I don't. That might be like. Is that like okay? People over sixty. Is that like a kind of like shorthand for this guy's a fucking prick? It must be. It it's must surely be. be. But he's wearing like just one golfing or possibly <laughs> dri- like driver's glove. What, it's not even a glove. It just covers the back of the hand. And what? What is it? Like, but let's look at like. like I wonder. If, like now, I'm yeah. almost like wondering. Was it sort of like, like something Lennon Nimoy <laughs> was wearing? Anyway, ah. Uh, God, but like after this, like when he's talking to when he's talking to with like Matthew and, and and all of that, like he starts like doing the Jordan Peterson thing, like talking about sort of like marriage and families are in decline because you know no one takes responsibility for themselves and all mm. of that, and people don't have the patience to try and stick out the breath with this move. I think it, and I think if I just, people don't have the patience to stick out the breath with the smooth. That's and they have what, no work outlook. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Well, I had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> had no idea. Kind of we were being but, joined, yeah. by, joined by Dr. J. Peterson here in the studio, but here we are. Anyway, so, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we have, like, we, we have all of this, and what we see here is is Kipner, he's, everything about him is about control. He, he's, he sums up all of the controlling and the curtailing and the negative aspects of the therapist, right? Like, the therapist here, he's more like, more like a priest he's there to offer you a kind of a secular theodicy he's there to justify the ways of marriage and the nuclear family and ultimately you know, the liberal capitalist order to you to to force you to reconcile yourself to living with the established order like this is a bit of a there's a little bit of a um no so no no, no this is different but yeah yeah, yeah. and like, there's actually a line hit when kibner like when like when we know as a pop person and jack are trying to like force you know they, they're trying to force Matthew and Elizabeth to be replicated like Jack's I think it's Jack who says to himself like everything's just the same afterwards you know same job same same clothes same life you just wake up in a new more perfect yeah. world I think it's like you'll be born into a more perfect world exactly yeah and there's this it's, that's one of the things that's so grim about this is all things aren't actually that different afterwards it's just everything's a little bit neater and we've all just sorted it out and we know where we're meant to be and what we're meant to be doing so everything's okay now we don't need to worry it's more it is more like like the fucking sort of like I like the it's more like industrialized prozacking of people in a certain sense mm. it's just taking all of the fears and all of the anxieties and that's actually the line from a 93 mm. film sort of like you have no more fears no more worries no more concerns no more anxieties it just all goes away it all goes away if you just submit to it I mean like we we talked about the line that got used in Hannibal we didn't actually say the line which is uh, oh <laughs> shit yeah yeah we, we, no, we, because we've set it up perfect, more perfectly here uh, which <laughs> gave you a little look there um, which is that like I'm trying to change the world to fit pe- like no, no no Kipner's trying to change people to fit the world I'm trying to change the world to fit people that's why his books are garbage um, and my poetry's hard to write because um, he says like oh yeah. Kipner churns these out once every six months it takes like, me six months to write a line how can you that's... say that about a man like Kipner I'm not saying it about a man like Kipner I'm saying it about Kipner it's, it's such a good film yeah <laughs> oh dear god so like and to return to Deleuze and Guattari they I like what Deleuze and Guattari in, when they, in Anti-Oedipus when they're discussing psychoanalysis they, is, is they, they identify in it this sinister urge to control and subordinate desire to the tyranny of Oedipus, 
Pound's anti-Oedipus. Psychoanalysis cannot admit the potential of desire to produce and create. It has to bring everything back to Oedipus. Oedipus, which is control, the state, and ultimately capital. And I quote, and I quote, <laughs> I think this is the, is this the last, this is my last quote of, of the episode, don't worry. And it is a long one. It's an extra long one because I love you so much. Um, <laughs> For what does it mean to say, for what does it mean to say that Freud discovered Oedipus in his own self-analysis? What in his self-analysis? What was it in his self-analysis, or rather in his Goethean classical culture? In his self-analysis, he discovers something about which he remarks, "Well, now that looks like Oedipus." And at first, he considers, considers this something as a variant of the familiar romance, a paranoiac recording by which desire causes precisely the familial determinations to explode. It is only little by little that he makes the familial romance, on the contrary, into a mere dependence on Oedipus, and that he neuroticizes everything in the unconscious at the same time as he Oedipalizes and closes the familial triangle over the entire unconscious. Psychoanalysis is like the Russian Revolution. We don't know when it started going bad. We have to keep going back further, to the Americans, to the First International, to the Secret Committee, to the first ruptures which signify renunciations by Freud as much as betrayals by those who break with him, to Freud himself, from the moment of the discovery of Oedipus. Oedipus is the idealist turning point. Yet it cannot be said that psychoanalysis set to work unaware of desiring production. The fundamental notions of the economy of desire, work and investment, keep their importance, but are subordinated to the forms of an expressive unconscious and no longer to the formations of the productive unconscious. The anedipal nature of desiring production the, the anedipal nature of desiring production remains present, but it is fitted over the coordinates of Oedipus, which translate into it pre-Oedipal, para-Oedipal, quasi-Oedipal, etc. The desiring machines are always there, but they no longer function except behind the consulting room walls. Behind the walls or in the wings, such as the place for primal fa- such as the place the primal fantasy concedes to the two desiring machines when it reduces everything to the Oedipal scene. They continue, nevertheless, to make a hellish racket. Even the psychoanalyst can't ignore them. He tends, therefore, to maintain an attitude of denial. All that is surely true, but it is still daddy mummy. Over the consulting room door was written, leave your desiring machines at the door, give up your orphan and celibate machines, your tape recorder and your little bike, enter and allow yourself to be Oedipalized. Everything follows from that, beginning with the untenable character of the cure, its interminable and highly contractual nature, flows of speech in exchange for flows of money. All that is needed is what is called a psychotic episode. After a schizophrenic flash, one day we bring our tape recorder into the analyst's office, Stop! With this insertion of a desiring machine, everything is reversed. We have broken the contract. We are not faithful to the major principle of the exclusion of a third party. We have introduced a third element, the desiring, the, the desiring machine in person. Yet every psychoanalyst should know that, underneath Oedipus, through Oedipus, behind Oedipus, his business is with desiring machines. At the beginning, psychoanalysts could not be unaware of the forcing employed to introduce Oedipus, to inject it into the unconscious. Then Oedipus fell back on an appropriated desiring production, as if all the productive forces emanated from Oedipus itself. The psychoanalyst became the carrier of Oedipus, the great agent of anti-production in desire. 
the same history as that of capital with its enchanted, miraculated world. So, aha! Uh-huh. Deleuze and Guattari, they identify... Uh, I've already said this, haven't I? Yeah. And although like this might sound highly theoretical and the references to Oedipus kind of outdated now, but consider the role that we... You know, in present culture that mental health awareness plays it's and this is the obviously what mark fisher fucking writes about so mm. so much right but it's re- that it that it's this kind of toothless and apolitical thing that you are that you're aware of if you know sort of like a sensible enlightened person right but mostly only for as much as you're expected to find the most productive accommodation you can between your mental health and the needs of your employer right that's what that's what this is still now in so many ways the um, our conceptions of, of of therapy of mental health uh, mental illness and so on are, are so often understood in terms of their triangulation with capital with efficiency and reproductivity your personal well-being only for as much as this is to the benefit of of capitalism of the liberal capitalist order it is it becomes another vector of control still and I just, I'm not like fucking say don't go to therapy like and I were talking about the fact like I had a bit of a promotion, promotion at work I can afford to go to a therapist now which I'm sure might help me sort what the fuck out I'm about that's not a sentence uh, so no, that's not <laughs> yeah, the sense rhyme. thank you so we're not necessarily saying that but we're talking about the political role the social economic role that these institutions play and that is what is dramatised in the role of Dr Kibner in this film so perfectly and this is just like a final this is a final note about the hippie thing and buying in rather than selling out as uh-huh. you put it there. I think that's a quote from SLC Punk, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's a, a quote of films got Matthew Lillard in it. It's, Love that guy. I wanna talk it is just briefly the end of Mad Men. Uh-huh. Uh which you know the like the great, the great, the great Mad Men, which takes us all through like the sixties into the seventies, right? And like that, the the ending of it, the absolute fucking perfect ending of it, which is Don Draper, like who is, I am so fascinated with that character. Like if I had the wearable, I would love to write something about like Don Draper as like the Delu- the Delusian uh, Don Draper. Did I say John Major? No, yeah. I did say John Draper. <laughs> no, you did. didn't say John Major at any point, but like I'm glad you were thinking it. <laughs> Um, but Delusian John Major. <laughs> <laughs> you did have that vision thing. <laughs> that was, wasn't that? Wasn't that was that, Adam Kershaw. That was HW. Was the vision thing. They both had, they both had we vision things. They both have a certain vision thing. <laughs> <laughs> Where Don Draper has, the, the great Delusian John Dra- Don Draper, Don Draper has fled to the fucking West. He's fled to the plane of consistency. He's at the hippie med- uh, communion. He's learning about meditation and breathing techniques. He's reconciling himself with his traumas and all of that. And he comes up with the idea for the fucking Give the World a Coke ad campaign, which is what closes out the series. You know, so <laughs> all of that, like, it, like all of the great liberatory potential that comes from it, every single element of it, it can just be swallowed up, can just be swallowed up by the mechanisms of capitalism, of control, and there we fucking go. So this is an incredibly pessimistic note to end to end my bet on. But there there we are. It is it is it is very much the downer ending to Literally, I'm literally I mean, wearing. Sorry, I'm literally wearing like a fucking black turtleneck. Like I'm literally. I'm sorry, it's literally the Family Guy bit. Now we take you to the end of a ninety, the pressing seventies science fiction film starring a guy in a turtleneck. There you go. Mm. I'm sorry. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, it's a bit. Glad I didn't manage to interrupt. But, yeah. Um, also, we were talking a bit today. Like I realized, like uh, 
a couple of years ago, uh, Sean and I went to the Sigmund Freud Museum, um, where oh, this guy might. I'll go. I'll go tomorrow and see if he's still working there, because otherwise this is kind of doxing in some capacity. But basically, we're in the gift shop of the Freud Museum in North London, which is it's quite funny because like Freud only lived there for like a year, and then he and died. The, like all his writing and his work and his life in Vienna, and like we lived there for like you know a couple, like about a year after being kicked out of Vienna by the Nazis. But it's like, we got all his shit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's an empty room, but you know, if there is a Freud Museum, and you know, it's, it's like the lesser celebrated Elkin marbles. It's like, we got the couch. No, whatever, you know, like a couple of no, fucking you can't like, <laughs> hysteric diplomats may have sat on it, but it's certainly not laid down. I don't know. But basically the guy in the gift shop of that museum was exactly the guy you know, call central casting. We need the guy that works we need in the gift a... shop of the Freud Museum. He's like a kind of like severe kind of guy in his forties. Was he? Did he have a shaven head or just no, a very he, no, sleeked back? Sleeked, sleeked back, almost blonde platinum hair. He was German. He was. He had a turtle Rake thin turtleneck, and he was also into Alistair Crowley. Yeah, like... and I I picked up the. This copy of On the Interpretation of Dreams. And he was like, ah, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, we're still, we're still the thinking about. The Gesundkunstwerke der Meister. Oh, I see you're going for the Oxford World Classics version. Well, I'm sure oh. that's fine. Um, <laughs> no needs must. Scrub. Um, but yeah, basically. <laughs> Oh, where was I going with that? Yeah. No, <laughs> it was a, a tangent to a stupid bit, which is like, uh, if anyone was going to be in favour of giving the world a Coke, it's Sigmund Freud, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that's one thing him and his nephew could agree on. Um, the deep state. Oh my God, we're not <laughs> over. What? Oh. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> we have so much more to talk about. God damn. All right, thank you. I never heard anything like it in my life. They don't want to hear about the accent. Right, of course, it's a big conspiracy. What's a conspiracy? Everything. Okay, so I'm gonna want to talk a little bit about the deep state. So I have this uh, lengthy quote from Deleuze and Guattari. There is thus an image of thought covering all of thought. It is the special object of newology, and it is like the state form developed in thought. This image has two heads corresponding to the two poles of sovereignty, the imperium of truth thinking operating by magical capture, seizing or binding, constituting the efficacy of a foundation. Um, a republic of milative. That. A republic of free spirits proceeding by pact or contract constituting a legal, constituting legislative and juridical organization carrying a sanction of a ground, Logos. These two heads are in constant interthought, a form of interiority, and thought gives that interiority a form of universality. The goal of world world organization is the satisfaction of the reasonable individuals within particular free states. The exchange that takes place between the state and reason is a curious one, but that exchange is an analytic proposition because reali realized reason is identified with the de jure state, just as the state is the becoming of reason. Um, so what does so, that mean? Well, that means there's two states, right? Right. Might one call one state surface state and the yeah. other state 
deep state. <laughs> yeah, or like the shallow state. Well, okay, let's just do this properly. Like, I just thought it was funny because I already talked a bit about, you know, at length about the concept of the deep state. That time I came on Buddies Without Organs, so I thought it would be funny if I, if I am like, hey, I've got a, I've got an interlusing guitar crow. And, you know, we got a... We gotta add our jollies somewhere. So, um, yeah. So, this is kind of like pivoting back to what I was talking about with, like, the conspiracy genre and the history of, like, actual literal fucking his- conspiracies that happened. Um, and I guess, like, a bit of background on that is, well, like, I don't know, a useful way I think I can introduce the idea is, um, the, yeah. So, like, picking up, I guess from the historical point I made about the fact that between um, 19, between 1956, the date of the original film, and the 1978 version, it had come to light that the US state apparatus had been doing a lot of really awful shit. Um, and, you know, like, you know, there's, I, I reeled them off, MKUltra, COINTELPRO, you know, this isn't, this isn't like, we, we, you know, there is so much that we couldn't possibly summarize, but like the bit, the bit I've decided to zero in on is this idea of the deep state. And like what I was, uh, what I wanted to kind of like build towards is establishing this idea of what I call the paranoid aesthetic. I talked earlier, you know, about like we're, we're talking about paranoia as a literal thing, but as an aesthetic thing. And as a kind of just like a cultural force that within it contains a kind of mechanism of political kind of analysis. Um, and I guess, like, the best place to start is with a kind of... Actually, no, no, no. The best place to start is, like, what the fuck I mean by the, um... By the kind of paranoid aesthetic. Um, because what I mean by that is not, like, you know, the pop culture image of the, uh, of the paranoid. Of, like, you know, the, the guy in a trailer with a bunch of UFO shit on the walls. Um, you know, the, the nine... The nine you know, even X-Files is kind of, like, more in, in the vibe of the pop culture thing. And it's, you know, that thing we started off right at the top of the show with the kind of like lazy tropes of tinfoil hats and whatnot. Um, but like what I kind of, what I wanted to kind of get into is this idea that um, the way this kind of, this kind of, um, the, the way the US government conducted itself in its um, kind of strategy of dealing with the kind of Cold War as a kind of, vast material threat but also a kind of like what they would term well, you know, what would later be termed kind of an info hazard an ideological threat something that can be can be anywhere and can transmit itself through bad ideas in the same way people accuse conspiracy thinking of doing but it's like it's you know, deciding that like workers should have rights and stuff <laughs> like that and maybe um free enterprise isn't um necessarily an, an a, unalloyed good yeah an unalloyed good um so yeah um but like specifically you know there are these things the u.s government did bad things that goes without saying but the way they did it is interesting and how they came to do it in this way is also interesting and um, this is where i you know why i wanted to talk about the idea of the deep state and the well the deep this requires a clarification of terms because like um, there's a couple of things that, like, a couple of different terms that are kind of, you know, have a lot of crossover. There's, like, I think it was, um, the, the idea of, like, the dual state, um, and the, the concept of, like, the political and the parapolitical. 
uh, if we're kind of like dividing politics, the political, and you know, maybe introducing that as the third category, although Peter Dale Scott, the uh, identifier of that term, um, doesn't use that. I, I closed the tab, but I had actually a good quote, just like a succinct quote from um, Peter Dale Scott, which um, served at that description. Let me just, uh, there's no rush. We, we're good. Zen. Uh, okay, so. Um, yeah, the quote, he says, Peter Dale Scott, who, like, wrote some very good, like, early influential work on, like, anal analysing not just, like, what happened with the K JFK conspiracy, but, like, why and how that fitted into US political culture and institutions. He describes it as a system of practices of politics in which accountability is consciously diminished. Um, and <clears throat> I think, like, the best way I can describe it... Well, actually, no, like, basically... Um, one thing I wanted to establish, you know, this is this is tying in with what I talked about uh, conspiracy law or paranoia being something that is uniquely American in, you know, in the version that became like the definitive version. Um, and and this being the circumstance of particular um, circumstances of history uh, materially and that is materially and ideologically. In that, um, basically, the U.S. Um, the U.S. as kind of like hegemonic state, as leader of the quote-unquote free world, uh, and you know what would eventually become a kind of global hegemon, um, it was the its very existence is essential. Well, like essential to its existence is this idea that it is a liberal democracy. Um, that is uh, abiding by kind of enlightenment values of transparency, free and open debate, and democracy and, you know, democratic representation. However, in order to remain materially the global hegemon, um, they also, you know, had to, or uh, the people in charge of making such decisions saw themselves as needing to do a great many things that, um, were irreconcilable with those liberal democratic principles, such as um, collaborating with neo-fascists in Italy to overthrow democratic governments, and uh, to like fuck with various nascent democracies around the world, to reinstate the Shah of Iran um, after they, you know, once they once they got caught a whisper on the breeze that they might be wanting to nationalize oil revenues yes. and shit. I think that was um, that was us too. Well, yeah, no, that was a that was a that was a good like kind of early collaboration of. Um, <laughs> of that, yeah, nascent special relationship. Churchill, one of his many fuck Churchill things is like, yeah. Um, yeah, Iran, 1953, day, look it up. Um, but basically, um, because like these things were irreconcilable, it meant that um, the mechanisms by which these kind of, you know, the security state is essentially what I'm talking about. The mechanisms by, the, by which the, the security state operates necessarily had to do this in secrecy um but institutionally they also had to kind of disconnect themselves as much as possible from the actual explicit function of basically like the overt you know principles on which the state is supposedly working um which is you know like uh, this is this is a thing actually i've talked a lot about in my dissertation which none of you can read because it's not in the public sphere but um the idea of like uh, liberal institutionalism is the belief that um 
that like an institution functions according to the ideological principles on which it is founded whereas um uh, institutional realism uh understands um understands you know the actions of an institution are probably more likely to um be the result of the private interests of the powers that allow such an institution to exist because like they can just pull the plug on the operation if they don't you know um uh you know that or like at least that's the perception um and that these things are that's why you have the idea of any kind of like reform or departure is an inherently dangerous thought and so like so yeah that's why these things happen in secrecy and also it's like if we go back to like the the founding of the CIA. Actually, no, Sean, this is a reference you'll enjoy. Deep Space Nine, <laughs> Section 32. Well, that's they why I brought about... it up. <laughs> yeah, mentally. Because um, we're, we're communicating by these little kind of like uh, little uh, tuba tendrils under the desk that you can't see. Uh, good, good, good idea, Sean. Um, <laughs> and me. Good, good idea, us. Good idea, uh, hive mind, yes. Yes. Um, so basically, Section 32, they talk about it as being like, oh, well... At the beginning of the Federation, it was officially part, but it seems to have just disconnected as this rogue agency, but it seems to also still be a functioning part of, um, of, of Federation security and infrastructure. And it works in tandem with Starfleet security, although there's a lot of, like, conscious, like, non-disclosure and whatever. Um, but that's kind of, like, a parallel, you know, it, it, that is doing the CIA, basically, but in Star Trek. Because, like, one of, I think it's, like, the CIA... It's, you know, it's got a website. It's got fucking cringy, you know, things about, like, how they're diversifying their workplace and things. It's got a Twitter profile. Uh, it makes little jokes about naughty things it might have done in the past sometimes um, for me, like, for liberals, idiot liberals who think they're, like, uh, schizoid shit posters but are actually just... Um, Warrenites. Just imagine um, the CIA like just doing the Tim Robbins voice. Yeah. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, oh my god. Yeah. Um, but basically, um, what the deal is with that is that, um, yeah, no, the, I think it was like in their official founding. I'm not looking up the quote because we're, we're recording already for a couple of hours, but um, the, I think it's like, yeah, the CIA's objectives are to do a number of very specific things. And sundry acts that may um, facilitate these activities and interests. And it's like, and just doesn't name it, but like such sundry acts are just like pretty much most of what the CIA appears to have done that we can, as far as we can tell, as far as we've been able to ascertain by, um, by various like civic interventions. Um, but um, like also weird signal position do more civic interventions um but not like january 6th but maybe actually <laughs> but, no but no, no okay no, but like no. the good kinds um okay yeah, yeah yeah sorry second second third of last final third of the episode it's getting this kind of energy but basically basically this disconnection uh and the kind of like parastate meant that it was like a certain we you know these circumstances made it kind of useful for the deep state to operate in particular ways it's like oh if we can't you know we can't go through the regular channels on half of what we want to do so here's some like nazis or criminals or drug traffickers or kind of like people who um are operating in a clandestine fashion but have a comp 
co- you know, a professional, like borderline professionalized and regular to, and, and like reliable and they're uh, predictable. controllable, predictable, they're predictable, predictable, um, mech- you know, mechanism and useful ways of eluding uh, scrutiny <laughs> that we can just operate through. One of and, the, yeah, this was sort of, I hope this isn't preempting anything you wanted to say, but something that occurs to me is the Oliver Stone's JFK. One of the no, things, that's exactly what I'm going to say, yeah. We, but in particular, the fact that they're, they're all gay. Yeah. All, because, you know, it being America of the past times, like, yeah. being gay, actually, this might, some of our listeners might not know this, but actually, for quite a long time, that wasn't allowed. Yeah, and, or so, it was frowned upon, or you would be, yeah, or you would be, like, horribly ostracised yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know, thank, thank, thank God we live now. Uh, but but what, I mentioned this precisely, I mean, like, I forget the name of the, of the guy, Kevin Costner's character in it in real life. But oh, like, he's... That Bannister? guy, Kevin, no, the no, guy no. in it, like the main guy, like mm. his whole thing, like which isn't mentioned in the film, but which was brought up in the last podcast on the left thing about it, was that they, they murdered JFK because they're gay. Like, they're because they're gay. <laughs> 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 and, I mean, there is and that. And it got yeah. them all horny. Um, but, yeah. like, but that's one of the things that's but, interesting like, yeah. about that is, you know, the fact that, like, the queer underground being a thing at the time as well. There's still yeah. a lot of the implication there, but sort of like even, even the homos were part of it, even we yeah. homos. Yeah, <laughs> because we, we were yeah, yeah, yeah. Predict, predictable. So like, you could always trust them to be very silly and tired. Yeah. <laughs> they nudge people when they're shooting. <laughs> they muck about. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. So um. So yeah. We we get this like um for want of a better word fucking monkey house of absolute freaks who well with like fucking drawn on eyebrows and weird wigs because they don't establish in Oliver Stone's JFK that yes, the he guy has looks, alopecia the guy looks like that in yeah. real life yeah. or we get you know just like this cab local businessman who like yeah and they actually like because he's like he's not the the, the kind of like the guy who um goes to prison who's like um who's like, you know, gets, gets questioned, and it's like, of course, you know, you wouldn't understand this stuff because you're a liberal. You've never been fucked in the ass. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Magnificent film. That's Tommy um, Lee. Is that Tommy Lee Jones' no, character? No, 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 no. Tommy Lee Jones' character is the one who is um, a respected enough and use, and useful enough kind of local public figure, uh, Clay Bannister, slash Clay Shaw, because he did use pseudonyms and alternate identities although oh, this he's was omitted in he, the Warren Commission he's that and, mag, he's the magnificent southern dandy yeah yeah he? yeah and he's like kind of like of course you know uh, politics notwithstanding I had a, a, a marvellous appreciation for the Kennedy for Mr. John Kennedy he was a man of great style and great panache <laughs> yeah um, and, and even, there is that bit where like uh, everyone's kind of like abandoning the Kevin Cosner guy who we should try and find the name of, but we're not going to because he's like this was an actual guy. He was like he was the count. He was this. He was like the state prosecutor or something. He was the attorney general for some, some Louisiana like yeah. or something. He wasn't. He wasn't just some guy. Some like kind of like everyman character invented to be Jim an Garrison. Guy. Jim Garrison. Yeah. This should yeah. attorney Jim Garrison. Oh, and they also try to smear him as like, hey, Jim Garrison. You remember me? We fucked in the bathroom just now. Look in front of all these cops. You know, there's that bit. But he then, in turn, he's accused of being gay um, as a kind of smear tactic. But then also his wife is saying like, I don't, I think you're going fucking crazy. I think you're just, I think you're just upset with Clay Shaw because he's a homosexual and you're persecuting him. It's like, 
Both of these things can coexist. This is just good material analysis, you know, that, like, but, um... <laughs> he can be a homophobe, but also right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah. He, maybe he was right to be phobic to that Okay, <laughs> but basically, okay, so, like, yeah, um, so... <laughs> That was such a long point for like one of three bullet points I wanted to do. So like the other one being just like yes, we're, as we've already said, they have a very real history of mind control, experimentation with drugs, and like spying and gaslighting, and and just like doing just straight up crimes on people. But like um, the other thing about like the yeah the other thing about the deep state. Uh, specifically, I'm saying, I'm probably going to be using, like, CIA and Deep State interchangeably. The, let's say the intelligence community. Um, the, and I'm not even sure if this is something that was necessarily intentional, or is just a product that evolved out of lack of oversight. Well, like, yeah, no, actually, no, this is, this is the cool thing to kind of, like, look into, in that, like, one of the kind of, like, key institutional characteristics of the deep state of the intelligence of the security state including the intelligence community and whoever else wanted to get in on the action but a key thing to that is um is the conscious absence of oversight which developed into this kind of like silicon valley disruptor mentality of just like let's get the maddest shit out there let's put let's put Let's 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 give fucking Astradiel to Castro so he go like so Castro so he grows tits and his hair his mustache falls out and he's smoking a exploding cigar that's also laced with acid. It's just you know wacky clown shit. But like, it's not that like you know they took all this kind of like dumb bullshit to um to like to to, to you know because it's like well you know. Who says it's not going to be an effective political strategy? It's more that um, it, it, this lack of oversight led to this kind of experimental streak, which meant that, um, and also just like the sheer vastness of that and the sheer decentralized, diffuse scale of this process happening meant that any shit that was like, any shit you could say was both true but then irreconcilable with reality. But at the same time, there's this kind of like massive, you know, there's so much of it that, um, that it's like, what the point I'm building up to here is the, um, is this idea that like the, the, the deep state is, um, is a machine for making insane people. Um, it's a, it's a machine for making paranoids. And I was going to kind of, maybe poetically opine that perhaps because it was born out of paranoia, that paranoia is its chief product and sustaining force. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is not bad, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, basically, um, it's like, to challenge, you know, even if this was never intentional, the reason it became the kind of, like, modus operandi of the intelligence community is because it fucking worked. Because it meant that, like, to challenge the CIA, you know, to challenge the intelligence community in any way um, was just to kind of, like, this was so much more effective than just secrecy. Um, this was, um, this was, like, um, you know, this was, like, you know, like Muhammad Ali rope-a-doping people. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to just, like, keep my guard up. I'm going to let my guard down a little bit just to let you exhaust yourself and go insane. <laughs> and, um... And yeah, and so it just like, it means that like, 
the, the history of the deep state, the version of it that we're able to ascertain is a bizarre, surreal, like, freak show of bizarre, of, like, shit happening, not even, like, from, like, the corridors of power, just happening down on the farm, happening in the Manson's house, happening with this local character, happening in, like, nightclubs and things. It's, like, it's, you know, it's, it makes, it is a thing designed to make one parent, or, like, it's a thing designed on a certain unconscious level to make one insane. And yeah, paranoid but... and like this is what i so i just wanted to actually kind of like talk about the uh yeah go on sorry yeah and so and this is again so i wanted to bring up the, the stuff about mark Hilton's book with Raj, about ufos like this again that is like the point of creating a landscape like that or one of the points of creating a landscape like that is that it becomes very difficult to ever be certain what it is that you're dealing with at any one point like it's always put like it's you know it's not unreasonable in the slightest to say you know Charles Manson was just a fucked up weird guy and had nothing to do with anything mm. and that's it that is totally like totally totally plausible but creating a situation where like you know the sort of like the CIA literally are just drive driving people insane by posting them fake horoscopes and stuff like that you you, you that's that you generate an environment where certainty becomes an impossibility it's like, which is the point the, yeah. which is the whole point where are they getting the belladonna you know the hippies on uh, hey ashbury weren't taking recreational belladonna you know the the only people doing belladonna were fucking mk ultra because they they found it a quite useful thing in like kind of as a as a little a lubricant for the old um, head massaging uh, princess that they, um, I don't want to say perfected, but certainly had a good go with, with virtuosos of. But yeah, in terms of like, you know, what I wanted to kind of like call the kind of like paranoid aesthetic, just watch Twin Peaks, okay? Because it's like Twin Peaks, it's what like, or especially Twin Peaks season three. Yes. Because it's like, okay, we're looking at, as well as being an intensely kind of like micro level, here's, you know, okay, this is like, okay, bit of dialing back a little bit, like Twin Peaks season two really kind of, exp- exp- you know, not necessarily that unconnected to David Lynch's original vision, because David Lynch's original vision was a little diffuse itself, but um, by design. But, um, but they made it this big mythos about demons and ancient lodges and houses and shit yeah, and dragons and Arthurian legend UFO. all melting into, yeah, yeah UFOs, in the, Indian lore. In the book, like in the, uh, the secret history book, there's like literally sort of like the history of America is the, is the history of the conflict between the Freemasons and the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But like in Fire Walk With Me, he brought that back to like, no, this is all actually, it's not nothing, but like... The core of this story is the trauma, is the kind of like uh, the, the incestual trauma of like the rape and murder of a teenage girl. Um, but in season three, it's kind of like he kind of like makes these two things exist side by side, I feel like, because it's like the mythos is kind of the point as much, uh, you know, point counterpoint. It's a big interior drama, but it is also a grand metadrama of like kind of the 20th century having its kind of... Well, yeah, no, the, the Laura Palmer being born out of the, the, the atom bomb, which also spawns Bob, and then the 20th century being this 
vast insane thing where it's like okay so we're looking at this is america this is a portrait of america as defined by radioactive hobos and bizarre shit and um and the the fbi are in on this and the air force and it's like but also the fbi are curious themselves as to what's going on it's like it's insane and surreal but that kind of you know to look at any of the shit is to feel like you're in a very very lynchian space I think, and that's what I wanted to find as the conspiracy aesthetic. However, um, can we just, like, make sure to keep... This, this can be a long one, because I have a lot to say. Um, but, yeah, like, if you also... You know, another very good example of the conspiracy aesthetic is, like, it's on Netflix, it's called Wormwood, it's from 2007, it's an Errol Morris documentary, and it's actually, like, it follows Eric Olson, who is the son of Frank Olsen, uh, who was a civilian scientist who was brought in under the kind of, like, uh, control of the... Well, like, under the kind of governance of the military uh, because he was, like, a biologist and he was working on um, the, basically, you know, uh, biological weapons to um, drop on Korea. And um, it detail He was... He mysteriously threw himself out of a window... And then, like, it's... The documentary follows, like, the son's attempts to kind of, like, find out what happened. Um, because it goes into this big history of MKUltra, of this fact that, like, um... Oh, so he was actually being experimented on. He was being fed LSD. He was being gaslighted and driven insane by some CIA handlers. And it's, like, this was the thing that was actually released in the, um released in the kind of, you know, limited disclosure in the 1970s. And there was a kind of, like, Senate hearing and, and like, the key figures of this original story of what happened to Frank Colson were, were deposed and said things. But basically, what they released was, um, oh, yeah, we were doing MK Ultra and he had a bad trip and threw himself out a window. You know, we take responsibility as far as that's concerned. But um, but then it's, like, as, as it progresses, it's like, actually, no, he was going to... He was... Yes, they may may or may not have drugged him, but that's academic because really he was... They were worried that he was going to um, tell too many people about... We you know, disclose what he'd been doing uh, with germ warfare research and what that was... Cap you know, and that with being the kind of like the thing that they denied they were doing in Korea. So they just whacked this guy. But in order... You know, and they, they couldn't just say, oh, we whacked the guy. It's like, no, it's actually... This guy died under bizarre circumstances, both chemically and, um, and, you know, circumstantially. Um, but, like, what I kind of, the why I bring that up is because it's, like, <clears throat> it follows Eric Olsen, who is, like, who's someone who's, like, goes, I don't know, he's, like, a kind of living proof of, like, why the, um, Hofstadter paranoid model is such a, dangerous thing to talk about because well such a dangerous kind of lazy stereotype to fall it's, into it's da dangerous to take it as gospel yeah, it's not yeah. the final word on it it's a pro it's a product of he of a particular political moment because as as anything else. because like what you're seeing in eric olsen is this guy's this guy's a fucking harvard uh psychologist he um and um, you know he's he's very honest with himself he's very self-critical he's a he's got an excellent memory and an excellent mechanism for interrogating that memory and being very like frank 
about um, his own kind of like feelings and how many, and like is will readily admit where he may have jumped, been lured into things that were misleading or where he may have been duped and how he came to kind of like realize things. And it's like, this is, and also I, I, th I think it's worth mentioning. He's also beautiful. Like he's kind of got, you see videos of him in like the seventies and eighties and even nineties where he's got this kind of like gawky charm. Uh, not unlike a young Jeff Goldblum, and that he's just like, he's, he communicates in this very friendly, very humorous way, and I am weirdly in love with him in a way that... Would smash. I don't, I don't know, like... That's, that's the way yeah, to signal the official like, position. I just think he's a, he's a beautiful soul, and I want to avenge him. And um, basically, yeah, it's like, this is what a very intelligent and rational person trying to deal with this looks like as in like he's still screwed over by it he's still you know as they say in the show he gives up a very promising career as an academic to fixate on just finding out the truth of his father that he never gets that it's just like he spends invests so much of his em emotional energy he like uh, he he digs up the body at what well, he has a guy dig up the body at one point but like yeah but like what the reason I bring up his, like, kind of background in psychology is interesting because one of the things they talk about, which he mentions, but they don't go into, is this idea that he does, like, what he calls the collaged method, uh, which is basically using kind of, like, collections of images and arranging them, you know, doing kind of, arti it's like an artistic thing, but it doubles up as a kind of diagnostic tool for, like, getting people to engage with memories and kind of triggering things. It, do it does just sound like you've described someone pinning a load of salt. Pictures and newspaper clippings on the wall and connects them with red string. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, but no, but no, I mean, wait, I, I, I looked up like there's a nice little. Oh, God. <laughs> I've got. This isn't a lengthy quote, this is just like a definition of what the collage method is. So, the collage method consists of a progressive sequence of physical activities and closely correlated series of therapeutic interviews. Taken one by one, the physical activities of the college collage making appear disarmingly simple. So simple, in fact, that their significant e significance easily escapes notice. However, when they are taken together, it is as an integrated series of transformations. A quite surprising symbolism appears. The activities entailed in making and physically transforming collages can then be seen to embody the logic of psychological development. These activities comprise an extended metaphor. They symbolize the growth of the human mind. Um, so basically, he kind of uses... He, he manages to kind of like break away from just entering into the paranoid mode pretty much by using the insights he gets from the collage method because like the whole documentary is done in this in basically that style um and he talks about like yeah so like i managed to use like a lot of artistic things i used hamlet uh, yeah he keeps coming back to hamlet as we do um to, as kind of like as a kind of like means of understanding what actually happened and getting you know breaking out of the particular to talk to look at the general and to understand to, to derive a logic from the general that he can't get from the hyper specific and getting away from um and you know resisting um pure paranoia in that way but like also in doing so because errol morris has organized has like produced this documentary in this fashion uh it's just like it's really cool because it's like 
it's it's like more David Lynch, and that is because we need more David Lynch. And yeah. that is Wormwood, and not that just, is just, Wormwood. Just to make it, just, I'm certain he did say the name of it, but I just 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 make sure we. That did. is Netflix's that... Wormwood, Errol Morris, 2017. Right, I'd like uh, to, yeah, I'd like to read a quote quickly. Actually, Go for this, it. Is, yeah, this, yeah. this is actually going back to the Lynch occult paranoid America, right down to the roots thing. <laughs> this is absolutely there. <clears throat> Apologies, apologies if I have actually mentioned this on the podcast before. I may have done, but this is just a line from a story by Don Webb called Platinum Hearts, who's like a he's a cosmic horror writer. I'm absolutely obsessed with, and is very much plugged into the America thing. Mm. <laughs> just pulling down Lucy's computer there. Thomas Jefferson wanted to build a series of signal towers across North America. Mark said, "I'm not surprised. Jefferson was a Mason." He designed the Great Seal of the United States, a trapezoidal signal tower. He'd have built them across the entire Louisiana Purchase, up north to Alaska, where he could flash messages across to his fellow Mason, Tsar Alexander. Can't you see those stone frustums signalling each to each in the polar night? This is just such a tremendously atmospheric image i that is everything for me for me everything about the fucked america thing the paranoia thing the the occult conspiracy goes all the way down thing is summed up in that image that's sort of like mm. oh yes and of course these are the signal towers that allow us to allow the masons to communicate across the bering strait uh, <laughs> yeah. i get the impression this is so this is tangential i get the impression that american masons are kind of less fucked than british masons like to correct me if i'm wrong i just get that impression i get the impression they're more of a fun bunch of lads who are just really keen on the mysteries rather than ours who i'm certain there are plenty of fun lads who are keen on the mysteries in british masonry i just just feel ever so slightly more like an extension of the conservative party anyway um, can i interject with a slight tangent about that time i was drunk at a wedding and just like wandered off from the kind of dance to um, the other rooms in the Masonic Hall in which the wedding was taking place and I was having a chuckle at this illustrative diagram of how to wear your Masonic apron properly it's like, correct, incorrect <laughs> and I was taking a picture of it and then two guys appeared behind me and was like hey, you're interested in masonry, huh? <laughs> and it's like, we like women in now and, and I was like, cool, cool he's like, hey, do you want to see the hall? And I'm like, yeah, cool, so they take me into the hall and I'm like wow there's all this masonic shit everywhere and it's like if you look up you see there's that symbol symbol in the uh the the letters of the uh hebrew people uh yeah that's that's god that's that that says god um and it's like yeah so you know anyone anyone can join it's like you know um but you do have to have a religion you need some sort of like confessional situation you know we we, we, you know we're open mind we'd like we let in you know like catholics (laughs) hindus Jedi, <laughs> um, and I was like, ah, cool, yeah, I'm yeah, so, yeah. I'm so, I, I, I'm sorry. That just sounds like the energy I need in my life, like a chummy, disarming, totally out of place energy. Yeah. Wonderful. I did have a lovely time going on the tour of Freemasons Hall uh, on the Todd once. Uh, okay. The the guy there being very insistent that's like the suggestion that the government, the suggestion that's like you ought to declare that you you're a Freemason if you work in certain professions like the police or are a judge there's a human rights violation <laughs> what convinced it is i think they're quite good reasons for declaring if you belong to a vested interest organization if you're a judge anyway yeah, if you're an institutional realist um yeah so i guess so yeah i, t- so the so I drunkenly be- took some selfies of me sitting in the chair making sort of 
gestures. Uh, so the weird signal position is that uh, the Freemasons are based and you should all become one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, this was in Norwich. You remember, like, I, I remember many times, like, walking past the Masonic Hall at, like, 10pm on a Tuesday and watching, like, a bunch of, like, old but really fucking dripped out <laughs> old people. Oh, so like, like, reeling drunk getting into big cars. The, or uh, something, like, in my old office, back in my old office in Brighton, uh, was very near, it was on Queen's Road, which is very, which is on, like, the road of the Brighton Masonic Centre, and it was would be sort of, like, once a month, you just get all of these sort of, like, sort of, like, oh, dot slightly doddery old men, like, in suits with ties, or even, like, like with their little suitcases, Sorry, this is very sweet. I'm certain there's something like fucked up about like prop, I don't know, property deals involved with it somewhere. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. This is this is wholesome. This is a wholesome form of conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, 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 yeah. anyway. So, so the, so the CIA they... just like fucked a guy up until he died, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> many. Um, so, yeah, but like, I guess what I wanted to do with this is explain like that aesthetic. Um, I mean like. Uh, one other thing I was going to talk about is like kind of if you want to make some sort of like more less long winded, more less long winded, um, but don't look at the time, it's fine. Um, <laughs> less long winded, like kind of summary of like the par- what I'm p- positing as the paranoid aesthetic. I'm sure someone's already done it and better, but like um, if you think of it as like kind of America's version of what Roadside Picnic was doing, or like Roadside Picnic adapted to the film Stalker by Tarkovsky. Um, was, you know, an analogy of Brezhnev's USSR. I feel like uh, Twin Peaks is as as uh, useful as an analogy for the American century. Um, yeah, but where does this leave the conspiracy genre? Because, like, I- I'm going to turn on a light behind you, Sean, because it's like, you're in darkness. <laughs> disorientating. Yeah, let's... <laughs> and, and what if nothing else are we doing but shining a light on various oh, things? Wow. Um... Yeah, basically, basically, um, like, the conspiracy genre. Like, I mentioned it up front. We talked about a bunch of films, Boys from Brazil, Parallax View, Three Dealers of the Condor, all bangers. Great films, enjoyable, New Hollywood, so cool. You know, <laughs> it's like the first generation of filmmakers who were ra- who actually studied film in university and, like, were the successors of the post-war film noir generation and had a kind of, like, analogous history with the French Nouveau Vague. Very cool, but bullshit. Because, um, basically, like, yeah, like, you know, we, we as people, um, as, as questioners of state power. <laughs> so, so, reckon- so, so, you say that in my head, the phrase people of pod just burst into <laughs> yeah. my skull. People of pod. Oh my God. Yeah, but not the pod, not pod people, <laughs> vital distinction. Um, we, you know, we, we love this film because we see ourselves in it as the people who are like, God, you know, this, this shit's actually demonstrate demonstrably real, and there are a bunch of cynical assholes trying to stop us from telling the truth about this shit. But, like, Kaufman, he's... He's fucking with us a little bit in that, like, he's so kind of consciously playing with... He's, it's a parody. You know, it's not just, like, this is, you know, borrowing the aesthetic of the conspiracy genre for a sci-fi film. It can be read as parody. It's like we get shit of just, you know priests being weird, people running, you know, paranoid guys running down the street screaming, um, you know, hippies, um, all this shit. And it's like kind of, you know, people nervously looking out of doors. It's leaning into like, lol, look at the paranoid. You know, it's, it's kind of consciously evoking that. And I kind of, well, I'm not going to say it's bullshit, but, um, but I think 
in order before we launch, you know, before we lord, uh, well, actually, no, in fact, after we lord <laughs> um, the uh, 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers as the perfect representation of our politics as a podcast. Oh my god. Uh, I think it's like, necessary <laughs> to look at like, kind of like what what the conspiracy genre actually represents in political and cultural terms, because it's like, it's, and I think I want to start by talking about Watergate. So, <laughs> Uh, two hours and 30 minutes into the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm a train a little... to catch loose. Yeah, really? Okay, wait, okay, okay. I can go, I can go relatively fast. Yeah, um, please do. I need to I'll go pay home. for you for a new train. I just want this, ep- I want to get this shit out yeah, there. And you, and I, don't, you... I don't like, I mean, I have, a t- yeah. I don't mean that it's like a time I need to go. I just mean sort of like, yeah, I do yeah, have yeah, to yeah. go back to Brighton. <laughs> this will take not that long. But basically, uh, Watergate, we, we have two histories of Watergate. We have the surface one in which... Um, the FBI did some bad things because that paranoid idiot kind of like sort of weirdly Shakespearean president, almost Shakespearean president, um, Richard Nixon, just had a, he was so angry at some guys that he wanted to smear them and fuck them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. He's my Um, most support Republican. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. So basically, um, so he fucked up because he was he he got to in his hubris he made the FBI break into a thing, and this was revealed by uh the the combined efforts of intrepid reporters played by Robert Redford and another guy Dustin and, Hoffman. and Dustin Hoffman of course and um and um and like and like you know collaborating with Deep Throat, who is a kind of, like, a well-meaning person within the established, within the institution of state, who gave up the goods for the better, for the greater good. And this, you know, published through that wonderful kind of, like, that epitome of truth and light. Star, the shining that. light. The New York Times. Um, f- fuck the New York Times. Fuck the New York fuck Times New to York absolute Times. fuck. Fuck New York Times, um, you fucking fascist apologist turf yeah, fucks. Fuck yeah, you. Fuck you. Um, but yeah, so it's like, oh, these guys are heroes. And like, and also, this is like, this is something useful. I talked about like, oh, people are still talking about Hofstadter. And the reason they think they can still, you know, liberals <laughs> think they can still like usefully cite Hofstadter and not look like idiots is because they're like, their, their idea of history is like, oh, so, yeah, the CIA did, and the CIA and the intelligence community and the FBI, like, did all this, like, awful, insane, brutal shit. But they don't do that anymore because, because, we sourced it because all of out. Watergate, because of the New York Times, because we sorted it all out. And also the Cold War ended. So, you know, that just kind of fizzled out. And if you believe in that stuff now, well, Jesus, God help you, you know. Um, but... Uh, and like yeah and that's like um that's that's how we kind of like yeah (sighs) that's how that's how you know like the model of the paranoid is now applied to um applied to yeah i'm gonna do my political bit and then my genre bit but yeah that's I, you know, I started right up front, like, Richard Hofstadter is sus. And that's because the idea of the paranoid and the kind of, like, the paranoiac method is, um, it was intended as a weapon against the right or, you know, a, a, a pathologization of the right. But 
really it's now being applied to the left just as much but and by the left i mean the actual left not fucking biden um which is that like oh you know like i think uh hofstadter even like talks about like oh yeah they you know they're so meticulous they do all this kind of like material things and they believe that like if they get enough like information on things they can like prove a bunch of shit but they're just like front loading lots of meaningless data and stuff and it's like what you're doing that you're not like diagnosing a kind of crazy pathology you are demonizing good material analysis because it's like the liberal believes that history is an interplay of ideas that it's like oh yeah the spirit of the enlightenment is born out uh, manifest in flesh in our institutions and these must uphold them and if they fail to uphold them then this can be corrected because there's really not another option and like and that like that you know people people like history works in these terms it's not um you know not the the more sensible opinion which is like a very very boiled down version of like the historical materialist analysis is that history is a series of people who know each other doing shit because that's the most useful thing they have at their disposal including individuals like fucking guy banister or clay sure you know it's like it's people who know each other doing things and it's like oh if you want to like if you want to um you know, going back to fucking Oliver Stone's JFK, I can't believe I've said that so many times in the show, but, um, but this idea that, like, it's like, you know, oh, how can 50 people keep a, you know, keep a secret? It's like, they have orders, and they have interests in maintaining those orders, because it's, it's the interplay of invested interests, usually which are determined by class. And that's what history is. And, like, saying that, like, oh, 50 people wouldn't agree to do a thing that's bad uh, just because they would benefit from it materially. It's like, you know, well, you know, they they drove a dump truck full of money to my house. I'm not made of stone, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, to, to say that, it's like, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's... That's why Hofstadter is sus, basically, uh, with signal position number nine. <laughs> um, and there was, and, uh, there was another, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, just uh, on the subject of what is history, of course, the official with signal position is history is the epochal dispensations of being as revealed to us by the master Heidegger. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and uh, one other, you know, my, my, se my second and more comprehensive point of our more concise point of... Um, of why the parent, you know, why Hofstadter is bullshit. <laughs> I don't want to lay, lump all this on Hofstadter. There have been many others, but like Hofstadter <laughs> was the first thing that came up on Google. Uh -huh. um, but um, when I searched fucking psyop cuck. Oh um, and, um, <laughs> it's a useful essay that you see. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's really good salient points in it. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it below, he's already you know, dead. I trust you, Sean. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, but, like, the other thing, the other thing is that, like, what he condemns is, like, Manichaeism. It's like, you know, oh, everything is absolutely good and ab all absolutely evil. And, like... It's like... <clears throat> and then recommends the, um... The necessary antidote to the harms that co that are caused by the paranoic as, like the sensible politician, the person who can find compromise, the person who can reconcile with people, understand things, and find the greater good through the semblance of all available materials, the enlightenment method, whatever. But it's like, 
what is Manichaeism than actually, like, having a fucking opinion that some things are bad and some things are good? And I'm gonna, like, just quote Jacques Roux from, um, from the Marat Sun. This is like, no, when will you learn to pick a side? Stop just singing about fucking while you're brought back under the yoke of the Archon regime. Because, like, the uh, thi- like if it, like, I, wanna fr- I, w- I do want to throw, like, Hofstadt a, a, a little bit of a bo- bone here. Uh, uh, in that, you know, sort of, like, there's, the, there's a reading of this, as, you know, what he's saying here is, there is the inevitable fact that an open society will be a ho- home to divergent interests, which have to be figured out. That is what politics is, right? Like, that is simply what politics is. But at the same time, if we're saying that you cannot hold... You know, holding absolute, absolute moral principles is Manichaean. That what that leads to is well, look, we just need to find a compromise with the slave-owning states in the south, right? Yeah, you know, like that. They fucking did. And and indeed, sort of like we just need to find a compromise with the segregationist states of the south. It's interesting that's something that isn't mentioned in, or you know, that that kind of thing isn't because that kind of thing isn't really mentioned uh, in the essay. But yes. Yeah, yeah, and it's like well. Well, you can't have slaves anymore. You've got this kind of supremacy that you can really, you know, groove on for a little while. But yeah, anyway, anyway. So, like, uh, basically, I, in what I've kind of loosely been terming the paranoid aesthetic, or, you know, I see that, I see that understanding of, like, how we think about paranoia as, like, a kind of consequence of the fuckedness of what's really going on. And, um, and you know, a, a starting point for getting around that and escaping these kind of easy liberal kind of like platitudes of like reason and compromise um that that's like you know that's the politics of what's really going on and um and where does this leave the conspiracy genre because the conspiracy genre it technically st- it had its foundations before watergate but it seems like watergate was very much the kind of like the the launch point for making it popular and it's like who are the heroes in this it's journalists it's people who aren't like part of the intelligence communities but are part of like liberal state institutions it's they're the like city. academics it's, it's the city of san francisco's health and health foods department inspectorate it's yeah I, I, that's actually very funny that like he's dressed like a kind he's dressed like fucking philip marlowe and some shit and he does all these like detective things but he's actually he's just looking for rat shit in the rice bowls um also just very very brief side note but i think it's kind of funny that um like the thing they're arguing over is like what he found in the soup. They're saying it's a caper, and what is a caper? It's a rolled up flower, um, seeped in vinegar or some shit. And uh, that's actually really nice. But it's like, I think the flower's actually more dangerous than the rat shit here. I mean, <laughs> whale's disease you can probably treat with um, with like antiseptic or whatever. But being born into an untroubled world, well, that's permanent. And. Mm. Um, and and also dying because that's literally what happens. It's the it's the Logan's Run situation. But basically, like that is what the conspiracy genre is valorizing, and it's targeted at liberal yippie people who read the New York Times and don't question shit. And uh, well, no, they they think they're questioning shit, but really they're just like you know taking a back seat and going like, oh, Robert Mueller's really gonna fucking do this. Like, oh, they're gonna assassinate Robert Mueller because he's told the truth. Well, we will replace him because we're the resistance. It's yeah, it's like the conspiracy genre 
is the kindergarten of the resistance that they never leave. Um, despite being really cool. Despite uh, us really liking it. Yeah, despite us really liking it and probably kind of talking about it, just like wonder, forgetting everything. Which I, wonder, I wonder if that analysis pertains to, uh, there's the, uh, I can't remember when it came out, but there's a found footage conspiracy thriller called The Conspiracy that came out uh, like five, six, seven years ago. I forget exactly when. I'm going to say 2013. But like what that's, what that, what that one's about basically is a couple of, a couple of like, I think that's actually more, they're more our people genuinely because they're a pair of like nerds do making a film about this homeless vagrant conspiracy guy with a great with like his placards and all of that yeah. where the conspiracy and what the like the conspiracy is the Tarsus Club and it transpires there the uh, the cult of Mithras it's it's actually it's really good right. fun I'm spoiling yeah. it so fun, think... but it's but but like the, but the thing is it like it ends with sort of like the great revelation like they go like they sneak into like their thing and they get found out and like fucking ripped apart but it just sort of like ends with just sort of like the conspiracy absolutely victorious in every set and there being no hope and I feel that's kind of more yeah, of our yeah. bag well, so, I think I wanted to wrap up tonight's proceedings with um by well by bringing the um weird signal official position count to a nice round 10 yes point 10 yes weird signal the only good conspiracy film that's ever been made is Neil Breen's uh, Fateful Findings, where a well-meaning freak um, hacks into the most secret Secret data of all the The, government. The most secret government and corporate secrets, I think. With his nine laptops all open at the same time. And he shows what should happen when such revelations come out, which is a bunch of like high up you know, congressmen and business leaders standing out front outside of the White House, confess their sins and shoot themselves in the head like Bud Dwight. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's uh So what we're saying, the weird signal position on uh, that I'm taking away from this episode is that UFOs are real um and and being a free i think we established freemasonry is based one yep. forgets um, and, uh, and and kill your <laughs> idols to replace them with neil breen uh well yes indeed we're Sean both Turner. yeah we're we're both tired queers my <sighs> back is hurting I need my to tummy hurts, but you're being really brave about it. Yeah, and uh, you know, and then we've, we're nearly out of mixed meats. Yeah, and long out of smoothies. So mm. until such a time as when, Lucy, hold my hand, hold my hand, okay, hold my hand. Yeah, stay weird and keep it signal. Good night. Good night.